0: how should we be assessing underperforming pitchers? I'll ask Todd Zola about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 28th. It's show number 26 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, Sirius XM, and a whole raft of podcasts discussing how to evaluate underperforming pitchers, what we can or should do about dealing with injuries, about no hitters, and a whole bunch more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols covers the National League, including Bryce Harper, Marcel Ozuna, the sudden uncertainty about Luis Urias in Milwaukee, Injuries to Brandon Belt and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Adalberto Mondesi, Corey Kluber, Zach Plesak, Kenta Maeda, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon looks at that other Seattle outfield prospect, Julio Rodriguez. And... In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at international free agent starting pitcher and outfielder Oscar Colas. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, SiriusXM, and a whole bunch of podcasts. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Good to be back with you, PD.
0: How are your teams doing?
2: Next question. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I've got a couple. You know what? When I, when I first hear that question, I go immediately to my labor and tout and and they're not doing well, so I feel like it's a terrible year. I've got private leagues that are doing fine, and some ex, uh, some some best ball they're doing fine. But and, and people we don't you know people don't care about their labor. And tout. Those that's where I for my mind. I could win a hundred thousand dollars if my tout team finishes in last. I'm gonna be miserable. That well no I won't be miserable. <laughs> no but, you not <laughs> uh, I, I, I uh I just that's where my mind goes, and tout and labor are not going well. So uh so in, in my mind my season's not going well.
0: Yeah, I actually was going to do my uh, commentary this week about how my uh, teams were doing at the the big Memorial Day checkout. You know, like Ron Chandler right. used to say, this is the weekend when you need to kind of suss out how your teams are doing and whether you have a chance, what you need to do and so forth. And uh, I did that uh, last weekend, Victoria Day weekend here in Canada. And and uh, it, it was so dispiriting that the two teams that I can control, I have a best ball team, but I can't change anything because there's no moves. So the two teams I can make moves in, I, I thought I was doing well, and I checked. And in the last seven to ten days, everything, the wheels have just come completely off. And I've had four days in a row in Tout American League uh, that I'm in. It's an on-base percentage league, and I've literally had four straight days where my team on-base percentage was under 300. Which is really hard to accomplish, you know, because I've got good players, you know, or I've got enough good players that I think I shouldn't (laughs) be getting two seventy OPS, OBPs, night after night. But nonetheless, that's uh, that's what's going on. So let's not talk about our teams. Let's talk about injuries. Something fun.
2: (laughs) You had okay.
0: You had a lot of funny tweets lately about the injuries in Major League Baseball, uh, including one that said you're thinking of starting a new fantasy baseball league where you draft a standard roster and the team manager with the most aggregate days on the I.L. wins, which I thought was pretty funny, but the opposite of that, the fewest injury wins is becoming a real issue for fantasy baseball managers, I think, and I'm curious about how you see the future of the game with regard to this ever-increasing number of injuries, and I'd like to start with league rules. Do you think it's necessary for leagues to amend their rules to keep the game fun and interesting because of all the player losses to injuries, and if so, how can the leagues amend their rules to adopt?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, yes. The trends, I think there need to be changes. And I think, well, we, we mentioned Telt Wars. I think Telt Wars already has one of the major additions included. I don't think there need to be more IL reserve spots because there's a fixed number of MLB players available for a roster. The, make you 26, not 25 times 30, right? 780 players. I don't care how many players are in IL. There's 780 players That we can use on our major league and our on our fantasy teams. Do you want them on a reserve list in your league, or do you want them in the free agent pool? The more IL spots, the more they will be situated on a reserve list. I maybe you can make trades, but you never want to count on trades. I don't think the answer is more IL. I do think you should have the flexibility to make a midweek move, even if you're Monday every Monday league or every Friday league, whatever it might be. I think you should have the flexibility to make a midweek move. To replace a player that got hurt, and we have that in Tell woods. Uh, that would be the main and, and m- many sc- uh, scouting, many scoring services can handle that. Um, it's not perfect because how do you judge, you know, when the guy when you can make the move? You read on Twitter, I read on Twitter, Zach Blusek was on the uh, IL, he didn't get placed on the IL till like Tuesday night, right? Right, so yeah. I mean, it, this is the way. Things go Sunday. He's going on the IL officially. Paperwork Tuesday night because the Indians had a late game. It didn't play Monday. So if you're in a league where lineups lock on Monday, you were in trouble. Uh, so that that's the move. That's what I would recommend. And I'm thinking about um, do you what if there were? I know that we use a swing man in tout right where you take a fifth. The fifth outfielder is a official, uh, essentially a hitter pitcher utility. Is, yeah, is it? Is it is it, is it time where we just eliminated one of the – I mean, people say eliminated a catcher. I don't know that I'm into that. But do we eliminate – do we, do we shorten the roster? Or just, do we just have 13 active hitters? Um, I, and, 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 I, I don't know. Um,
0: well, I've talked about this before here on Baseball HQ Radio and with you personally uh, offline. And, and uh, I've talked about it when I was writing the Rotisserie Gaming Strategy years ago. As the major league rosters expanded their pitching staffs and reduced their hitting staffs, I just thought it made more sense for rotisserie leagues, uh, for fantasy leagues in general, to reflect that by changing the composition of the rosters. I, I agree with you. I think you have to have two catchers because not having two catchers is reduces the the fantasy that you're actually assembling a workable roster because if you don't have a second catcher and your catcher gets hurt, now you're going to put, what, Mookie Betts behind the plate? I bet he could do it, but, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to do that because he hasn't done it at the big league level, so I'm with you on that, but I I suggested years ago that we needed to go to uh, one fewer outfielder and maybe instead of a corner and a middle, just a spare infielder at large. And then put a couple of extra pitching slots in, raise your innings minimum if you have one. And let's get our fantasy rosters more closely aligned with what the reality is in Major League Baseball, which is it used to be fourteen and eleven. Now it's thirteen and thirteen if we're lucky.
2: Now is that A L and N L only, or do you want to do that in a twelve team mixed as well?
0: I would do it in a twelve team mixed as well because I think it reflects the experience better. But what do you think?
2: I like I don't I don't hate it in ALNL because I think it makes the free agent pool a little more palatable. I still think we're okay in 12 and 15s if you allow the midweek move. I think we're moves. I think there's enough on the free agent pool to keep it to keep the lineup strong. But I, I and it and in it, and it it's so you've done the same thing I'm sure in Tout Waters. There a week should go to the waiver wire to replace a corner, and it's not like they stink there's nothing even eligible, right? There's no one, there's not, it's not like, I mean, I'll put a, a $0 bid on a guy that's hitting 120 because I, I want to Spirit of the rules is have an active guy. But there's sometimes I've been a couple of occasions in, in NL out, literally there was not a player eligible at the position to put active in my lineup. And that's, and that's just, all right. So the, now you're going to make a trade, you know, okay. Right. Uh, you know, uh, here, everybody, I am desperate. I don't have this, I don't have a, a middle infielder. Can someone trade me a middle infielder? Sure, I'll give you. You know. Uh, you know. The, their their third string shortstop, but you have to give me. You know. Insert your favorite starting pitcher here. You know. They know they got you. So.
0: Yeah the uh, the question of uh, the size of the of the pool is the main issue that I have with especially as you said in in only leagues the. Oftentimes you'll go in there and you'll filter for, you know, middle infielders and there'll be nine names on the list, but five of them are on the DL and the rest of them are in the minors. Right. And because in our scoring setup with our provider, they list everybody who's eligible and eligibility in our constitution says you can, if you want to pick up a guy on an injured list, maybe ahead of time or whatever you can, but not only that, but they're bad, which is, another, you know, or they're just not helpful. I shouldn't say they're bad. They're probably lovely people, but uh, I had a question about your uh, idea on the midweek activations. You're talking about moving players to and from a reserve list to an active roster, not going out into the free agent pool is that correct?
2: Correct. Correct. Now, of course, in, 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 in Tout Wars, we don't have it in labor. We only have four reserves. So there's a pretty good chance that you don't have a player that's eligible to replace your hurt guy. So you know, there's a there's certain element of that, of that going on, though, with multiple position eligibility and being able to flip people around. You know, part of your draft strategy is sort of attempt to alleviate that, uh, that issue. Uh, We also, in Tout Wars, have the ability to activate a player off of the IL midweek with the, uh, I was going to say conundrum, that's not what, the addendum that you drop the player we replaces, release him. You can't just reserve him. Uh, So now you have to make that decision. All right, this guy's, you know, Anthony Rendon's going to be eligible to bill on Thursday. Do I activate him on Monday and take three zeros or four zeros? Or do I wait until Thursday and drop, um, you know, whatever replacement that you happen to have in there for the first three or four days, then it's just your roster constructing. Is there someone you want to drop? Is he worth dropping that whole, you know, the whole nine yards there? So I think, I mean, it's that, even that's not perfect. Uh, but, you know, in, in larger leagues, and I think, you know, we're, you know, and we know this now, we're we're the exception, not the rule in ALNL only. Oh, you know, for the sure. Majority, Maybe this this listenership has a higher percentage than that we write for. I write for an ESPN and even wrote a while, Right. I think our listenership has got a higher, uh, you know, cross section of AL. you know, probably play a few different leagues. But in general, I mean, they're just non-existent in the greater scheme uh, of things. You know, I'm told, you know, don't even bother giving an AL only tip in your ESPN articles because, you know, one out of 100 cares. Right, yeah, that's true,
0: and it's a it's a conundrum, as you said, inadvertently. But it it's it's there's a lot of overlapping things here. Uh, for instance, you just mentioned this idea of whether in Tout Wars, the rule is that you can activate Anthony Randon, but you must waive the guy whose place he's taking on the roster. You can't reserve him even if you have a reserve slot available. Right, and I think that's probably m- more necessary the way the thing is set up now because. We want to get at least somebody in the free agent pool for the next guy who needs an injury replacement. And I think maybe that concern could be somewhat alleviated if we reduce the number of hitters on the roster. This is never a problem with pitchers. There's always pitchers. But where we run into trouble is with hitters, and I think that's where, you know, I think there might have to be some kind of rebalancing. But having said that, I also think there's a lot of value in having the same roster constructs in 12-team-only leagues as there is in 15 teams mixed because otherwise now you're talking apples and oranges when you're talking about valuations and trading and all those kind of things, and, and you're further segregating the only leagues out of the norm of, uh, of the discussion.
2: You're right. There are, another option is, and I know some leagues have done this, you know, keep uh, you know, and not even keeper leagues, but home leagues. Why do you need 12 teams? Maybe, maybe if you lose a team, you don't replace them, right? Yep. Someone leaves the league, now you're in a rotisserie. You can have an 11-team league. I know it messes up value, conventional valuation, because most of it is on 12-team leagues. But nowadays you can usually at least run a, a system somewhere and, and 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 recalculate everything for 10 and 12, 11-team leagues. But why you know, I tell ours we want 12 because we want as you know, many people worthy of the you know worthy of the league, whatever. But I, I can see a 10 a 10-team and 10-team AL and NL. If I was starting an NL-only league. Only I may only shoot for ten teams. Yes. Just to keep the free agent pool a little bit flusher.
0: Yeah, and there'd have to be adjustments made. But as you said, most mm-hmm. modern projection systems do allow us to choose how many teams there are yeah. in a league, even weird numbers like seven or nine or something like that. Because it's just a it's just a calculation that's made. But speaking of that, as a projections guy, how are you evolving your projection system to account for the fact that that there's all of these injuries, that they're affecting more players, a, water, a wider swath of players, a deeper amount of injury time lost. It's a real problem for us as players. It must be a nightmare for you trying to project a player performance at not having any real confidence that he's not going to get hurt.
2: Yeah, and the major change that I've made, and I think we may have talked about this, I don't recall, and it's even applicable as the season goes on. I am less stringent about having my projections mirror the amount of plate appearances per team that that they're going to get. I will over-project, in other words. I know at HQ, you guys use grids, and I, I do too. I just don't publish them. You try to have the outfield, you know, 300%, right, three times 100, you know. Yep. But I will, I will over-project that because I don't know who is going to get hurt. And I don't know, I mean, I but I kind of know who's going to replace him. So I don't if you if you make it equal. I mean, I I, I just think it's better at this point to uh, give everybody their fair share and give the give the replacement player. Call him Ty Wiggington. Show how old I am. That's what you always used to be. I don't know where Ty Wiggins is going to get 400 plate appearances. I just know that he is. Right, right. Three different uh, teams. And I, don't, I don't. Yeah. Don't know who's going to. Yeah, it could be. Don't know who's going to get hurt, but I just know that one of these outfielders is going to get hurt, and someone's you know I'm doing right now with the Red Sox, for instance. I don't know where Santana is going to get at bats, and, and Renfro, and, and Kiki, and Hernandez. I mean, I know. So I, I I'm over projecting. and I don't sweat it like I used to. I used to, I used. To, I think I mentioned is like. Before I got into the, you know, doing it for a living, I would look at, I would add up everybody's plate appearances, and if they didn't, if they weren't logical, I dismissed that, I dismissed those projection set because this person doesn't know what he's doing, he's over projecting. I've now, I now can see why, and and I carry it through the season, and every week when I make my adjustments, uh, I'll try, I'm trying to think of someone that just recently got hurt, uh, so I knock down that, you know, that person's plate appearances, and I didn't have to increase anybody else's because I've kind of already done that and I always have a pace and the total I'm projecting and maybe off by 500 plate appearances well now it's off by 350 because I knocked off 150 from somebody and I'm a little bit close and by the end of the year you know they're very close <laughs> but I so that's the major difference is I am no longer so bound by having you know 100% at shortstop 100% at second base and 100% in the middle you know I mean uh, you know, well, actually, no. Don't forget middle because we're talking MLP. That's the major, the major difference.
0: And of course, which is a kind of a way of saying you just have to accept that the projections are going to be less precise because injuries are something that are extremely difficult to project. We don't know. If we we suspect, but we don't know that a past injured player is more like more likely to be injured this year, and that a non past injured player is less likely to be. But that's only a probability it's not a certainty and a lot of players just defy those expectations a a, a hitter who's been injured and injured and injured like John Carlos Stanton years ago all of a sudden rings off three seasons of one hundred and fifty five games played and then we all get excited and we say, well now I know I can count on John Carlos Stanton <laughs> and and here we are this year where you can't count on John Carlos Stanton because he's always injured or he has been repeatedly injured it just is in, in injecting a lot of mis- imprecision into the process which I know some people view as a, an interesting thing because it makes the game more exciting in a perverse sort of way.
2: Yeah, no, it does. I'm curious what happens with Mike Trout last, next year. Right. Um, he, he's There's kind of a FOMO with Mike Trout in that what if this is the year he stays healthy? That's why he's still a top five pick. Anybody else with his injury history, we're, we're making fun of him, you know, and, and we're calling him soft. But no, it's Mike, it's Mike Trout. So last year he stayed healthy two months other than the short paternity leave. So he's back to being a top five pick again because he can now stay healthy, even though when he got hurt, it was usually towards the end of the season. And we only had two month season last year. So what happens this year? Yeah. He's out again. Two months. So yeah. is, he in, is, he a, is he a top five pick next year? You know, it, it, or will he finally get some injury, injury penalty? It, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see because, You know, once you get past like the top three or four and you're looking at Trout's name, it's like, what if what if he does stay healthy this year? (laughs) So it, 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 it comes into play.
0: Yes, and and when we look at a guy like uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I think he, his stock is going to rise. He's obviously going to be a first-rounder next year, barring some catastrophe this year. But if he carries on at the rate he's going, he's got the new sort of um, health approach. He, he seems to be working on his flexibility and strength and core and all of that kind of stuff, and it's pretty well publicized. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if Mike Trout gets a bit of a discount on injury. I wonder if we're going to be paying a premium for a Vladdy Jr. because we're not only confident that he can hit, he's got the launch angle thing figured out, as you said on Twitter, but also he just seems to be able to stay in the game.
2: Right, right. Uh, he's interesting. You mentioned Vlad. Uh, I wrote a piece and I did my top 15 for the Memorial Day competition. Well, it's a draft. NFC is running a league that starts a Memorial Day. And I did not have Lad in my top 15. And people, you know, mentioned he's probably the number one earner right now, depending upon one system. Why don't I? Why? Why wouldn't I draft him in the first round of this particular league? And I may have to go back and rethink. I'm not in the competition, but I would probably have to rethink it. Um, you know, the numbers. I whether he is able to maintain where he's at. He doesn't steal. There are reasons. You mentioned the launch angle. I know this is getting a little granular. Um, I think he's benefiting from the ball in that his homers aren't the majestic variety. And those are the ones that are getting knocked down with the, with the higher seams. These are the screaming liners and that they're not in the, they're not in the air long enough to be affected by the air resistance. So I think he's, I don't think he's getting more homers because of it, but he's not being hurt. You know, having figured out even this little bit of a launch increase is uh, is is, is benefiting him. And, and, all right, he he's out of uh, he's out of Dunedin now, but Salem should be pretty good for him. I I think we are seeing a first round Vlad, uh, assuming he shows doesn't get help doesn't get hurt and, and anywhere near this pace, I think he's there.
0: Meanwhile, uh, you mentioned that you made up a, a top players list for the Memorial Day drafts. So who's on top of that list?
2: That is Fernando Tatis, and I kind of I mean I contradict myself left and right. In this list, and it, and it, and it, I wonder if it's because I'm not actually doing the draft, so I haven't actually really looked at things, where I'm just kind of naming my top 15 players. But I, I don't penalize Tatis for the potential of injury, but I am penalizing Jacob Degrom. You know, so I, I admit there's a lot of contradictions. And I could, you, know, you asked me that in 10 minutes, and I may say Ronald Acuna. It's that close between Tatis and Acuna, but I, I think it, it comes down to, I. I think I would rather build my team with the shorts. It's not good with scarcity. I just think I'd rather build my team with the short stuff over the outfielder first. And now getting, you know, really game theory wise into this, these early NFBC drafts that they've done for the Moment of the competition are pitcher, even more pitcher heavy than normal. So I kind of, it would take a little, it would be against my DNA. I'd have to, I'd have to like cringe when I did it. But I can see taking Garrett Cole number one. People are doing that anyway. And so that's not a stretch. People are taking him number one. But the reason for a different reason, the reason being with all the pitchers being taken in the first two rounds, they would pit it would push two good hitters down to me. And I would I could start a team with Cole and then two hitters that I would be that I may be drafted the wheel if I had the fifteen and sixteen pick. Those guys might fall to me in the at the at the at the uh, at the at the front wheel. But so Tatis is there now. The whole shoulder, you know, again how can I penalize Degrom for a non-arm injury and not penalize Batista in every swing? His shoulder may dislocate.
0: No, it's an excellent point. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and Sirius XM Radio and Rotowire and a lot of other podcasts, of course. And Todd, you also have that Twitter account I mentioned earlier, and you had a post recently that said we need to be cautious about looking at team splits versus left-handed pitching because they're precarious was the word you used at this point of the season. Uh, Explain what you meant by that.
2: Well, if you, if you prorate, I I know it's not prorating, it's like working backwards, whatever it is. If you figure out how many, you know, air quote games teams have actually played versus left-handed pitching, you take all the plate appearances and you pretend they all happened in one game. Teams at this point have only played around 14, 15 games against lefty pitching. And that is just not enough to say, you know, right now it, it emanated and it wasn't just anytime I make a statement like this, it's not because I read one tweet. It's because I've read and or heard several, uh, you know, similar uh, thoughts, theories. And it's, you know, the White Sox are, pay, are facing a left handed pitching. Don't start that lefty. And they, it, was, it happened this week and a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and I think it was Jordan Montgomery, maybe. And Jordan Montgomery shut down the White Sox. But why? They crushed lefty pitching. Well, they crushed him in, in, in the equivalent of 12 or 13 games at the time. In 12 or games, they may have faced some easy, you know, a, a preponderance sure. of weak pause. So the point being, it's just it's just not a large enough of a sample to to make that much of a statement. And I, I kind of do it myself. You know, I when I do rankings, I mean, we don't have anything else to look at. It, it's what it, It's what we have. But I think that some people are – You know, double, you know, if you're, you know, know, betting's big. Triple your normal bet for the evening on because the White Sox are facing a left-handed pitcher. Uh, I think that that's, you have to be cautious uh, in that regard. It just, they're not, they're not faced, you haven't faced enough left-handed pitching to make that broad of a statement.
0: I also thought when I read that, that if team stats versus left-handers can't be trusted we certainly can't trust individual stats at this stage of the game either how long does it take for either of them to get set up so that we can be a little a little more confident
2: yeah i need to do the study on teams and it's on my to-do list and i just i haven't done it yet um because I, I like i said when i do team rankings and pitcher rankings i want to know this sort of thing players it's it's and and i know we've, we've talked about this and this is in the uh and, you know, the, the the book, as they call it, and that's the name of it. The, it's, it's very old at this point, but I think it's still um, applicable. You need – a hitter needs five or ten years of full-time play to own his splits. So this whole – even when we look at players and say he's a reverse split player, we don't know for a full five to ten years. Now, you can – if it's leaning in one way or another, you it – he, he does lean that way, but if you want to predict what it is, you take you know the number of years he's played as you know weighted average and then add in the league average for the remaining time. and you know so there's always some regression involved. So even you know in a one year in a one you know we see it at, at DFS and it drives me nuts that people play DFS and they win big money by using principles that are wrong, but that's just the way it is sour grapes on my part. Uh, you know, get better Zola. You can win money too, but the point being, they'll. This a reverse split player. I'm going to use him against this pitcher, and he hits two home runs that night. It wasn't because he's a reverse split player. He he happened to hit two home runs that night. So yeah, splits within a season. You know, so and so. I'm trying. There was uh, Jesse Winker. Uh, as he's crushing it. I mean, he's just crushing it. I was into Jesse Winker this year because last year he hit lefties pretty well. If you look at his splits this year. He's just, a right-hander has no chance, and he's back to being not so good against lefties. But he's just crushing left-righties so much that you just you don't notice it. So you know, last year he was okay against lefties. That wasn't enough to say this year he's going to keep it up. He keep, keep it up. And again, it's two months in, but into the season he goes on a little run against the lefty, and you know the numbers are are, are better. Who's to say? But it's not. We talk about process over results. That's The process is not sound to look at reverse splits. Yeah, and
0: not only that, but the likelihood of those things settling out in a way that's actually illustrative or predictive especially is pretty remote. We, we know that now. You mentioned uh, 10 years to figure out individual batter splits uh, as, as far as uh, left-hand, right-hand pitching goes. And I know a lot of people are going to go, no, 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 no. I, I've heard the guys on TV. No, 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 no. You know, they, they talk a lot about splits, and rightly so. And I know people who play DFS are looking for those reverse splits because I think they're not viewing it as necessarily as something that indicates the guy is going to be doing well against a left-handed pitcher. I think what they may be thinking is nobody will roster him Exactly, and he has a chance of succeeding better than what other people think. So I'm le- I'm arbitraging the difference between the reality of the situation versus the perception of the
2: situation. Right, or the price is not the price might get adjusted based on a split that doesn't exist. So maybe the price is is uh, doesn't reflect you know something something like that. Oh, for sure, and I that 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 that's absolutely true. Um, but it's uh, but I don't want to make it sound like you know a player. Doesn't I mean, if he the the splits are meaningful previous to the five years, you just can't look at them verbatim and say that's the split. There's still
0: potential for it to move before we wrap up this segment, Todd, uh, what are you making of the spate of no hitters in the early going?
2: The biggest thought I have isn't with the no hitters themselves, but I think we're being blinded to what's actually been now been happening in May. and what I have another couple of days before I actually run the numbers to the end of May. Batting average, BABIP is up in May. Uh, strikeouts are down relative to, to April, and home runs are actually the same as April, and they usually go up. So the talk about the ball and everything else ruining the game, where I think we're blinded by the uh, the, the no hitters that things are kind of what they're supposed to be doing at this point of the season, and that it it, it just we lost it. But the no hitters themselves, keeping in mind. Three teams are, you know, have been in the, on the losing end of two, uh, of, of two each. I think it's just a, a perfect confluence of uh, a, a good but not great, and that's another thing. Some of these pitchers, all right, they're good, but we're not seeing, you know, the, not seeing the studs throw no hitters. I mean, it's a nine, Joel Musgrove's nice, Carlos Hernan. They're good, but none of them, you know, we're not seeing the Garrett Cole, the Jacob Degrom, and the Walker Bueller. So I'm not detracting from the event. As a baseball fan, it's fun. It's, it's great. It, but as, as, a, as a, a skill-wise, this, that, this the other thing, I just think it's some really bad lineups ran into a pitcher, maybe an umpire, that was favorable that evening, and it just, it just worked out. Um, we get a lot of no-hitters in April, well, a lot. More no-hitters in April and May and in September than we do in the middle three months. Um, I expect them to fall. I mean, I know we're still on no-hitter watch every night but I, I I expect them to fall. I mean, the Indians and the Mariners, and was it the Rangers, the Tigers, just they're just not very good lineups, and it just, the way it worked out.
0: So if there's a lesson, uh, of course, it's start your starting pitcher in DFS against those lineups, and you're probably uh, a little bit ahead. I don't know if they adjust the pricing to reflect that or not. What about the phenomenon, though, Todd? Uh, in most of the instances this year that I can remember, and maybe this is just... Um, Recency bias or selectivity bias, but it seems like every pitcher who throws a no-hitter then goes out and gets shelled or hurt.
2: Yeah, well, I do the daily notes, and I always make I make the uh, Johnny Vandermeer and, and his family's on notice today because oh, so yeah. and so, you know, so and so, you know, or you know, you know, whatever, you know. But I don't, you know, no one has been. Well, I don't want to say no one, but we haven't seen the Johan Santana, right? 146 or whatever it was, pitch effort to get the no hitter. There haven't been anything too egregious. I know. I, I just, you know, I don't know. If they all have gotten hurt. I just think it's <laughs> they've gotten hurt in proportion to how pitching is getting hurt, right? right. I mean, uh, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just scary. But um, I think the bigger point, folks, is Babbitt's back up. Uh, it was a freaky April, and it's, it's, it's. We're still hearing the narrative about 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 the play things are i mean you can argue i mean strikeouts are down from april they're still up from previous seasons so you know there's so there there still is that um and i I kind of alluded to it with with guerrero the whole the whole thing with the ball i think certain hitters are getting penalized more than others just because the, the the increased air resistance is knocking down the majestic balls and when I think Freddie Freeman is fine because he hits the line drives. His home runs are, you know, more more line drive than uh than the than the majestic fly balls. But um, it's uh it, it, there are still too many strikeouts. But my point also in the piece talking about is, is this just generic or organic or are batter's actually making an adjustment? I think it's way too early to tell. But I think it's you know our batter's now hmm I can't hit you know my Last year, fly ball, home run is now a warning track. Maybe I don't need to swing from my heels with two strikes anymore. Maybe I need to go back to just putting the ball in play. So I wonder if there is a uh, a change in mindset on some level going on. The, think, the numbers back it, but I don't think it's way too early to make that judgment.
0: I think there is something going on as well. i, I and the reason I say so, and this is a very poor and unscientific method of figuring things out, but when I wa- I watch a lot of of games in the evenings, and we're hearing an awful lot of the announcers, especially the ex players, saying these players on our team, I've talked to them, and they are cutting down on two strike swinging. They're they're not swinging yeah, from yeah. the heels exactly those things you said, and I, that's totally anecdotal. But if 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 the player himself is saying, yeah, I've changed my approach then there's something to it. I know it isn't a, you know, a random survey that meets all of Gallup's requirements for objectivity and stuff, but between the fact that there's more of that kind of stuff, and I'm going to start looking into the actual numbers uh, to see if uh, who is doing it would be a real interesting thing to know as far as trade acquisitions and so forth. But in the meantime, I'm kind of convinced that something's going on with the approach that they are some of the teams are now saying to their players look we've been playing you know a a bloop a walk and a and a blast kind of baseball but we don't think that's going to work anymore we'd rather you tried to put the ball in play rather than striking out even if especially with guys on base move those guys along play a little more old-fashioned baseball. And I hope they are because it makes the game more interesting, as I talked about last week uh, with uh, the whole Theo Epstein uh, discussion that he's been having. Uh, Todd, let's take a break here. Keep your arm warm. We'll resume our discussion right after we have our National League and American League news. We've got Nick and Ray coming up. And then we'll come back and talk about underperforming pitchers. Todd Zola appears at Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, Sirius XM, and a whole raft of podcasts, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news, Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Buyer's Guides, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at early buy lows among hitters and starting pitchers, while Doug Dennis has some early buys and sells, as well as a bullpen notes column. In another Facts and Flukes Spotlight, analyst Greg Pyron shines the light on the skills and outcomes of Tampa right-hander Tyler Glasnow. And in the Speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at some revisions on baseball forecast downside player comments. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes in those facts and fluke spotlights. News updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters and relievers. Fantasy market analysis. In Brad Coleman's Market Pulse columns, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You have expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Well, as usual, plenty of bad news this week. Uh, Let's start in Philadelphia. The Phillies insisted that they were just giving outfielder Bryce Harper a couple of days off. On Sunday and Monday. Then they put Harper on the injured list with a left forearm contusion. They activated outfielder Roman Quinn from the 10 day IL in the corresponding roster move. Phil Hertz covering this story for Playing Time today. Nick, how does the loss of their best hitter change the Phillies' lineup?
3: The, the IL move was retroactive to last Sunday, so Harper could be activated as early as next week. He was off to a solid start in 2021, batting 274, uh, 247, expected batting average, seven homers, four steals. Overall numbers were a lot better before a recent Super 21 slide that might have been related to the injury. Roman Quinn missed three weeks with a finger injury. Before hitting the IL. Quinn was sick for 44 with four steals, had been caught stealing three times. And despite the low start, Quinn made getting uh, plenty of playing time while Harper is out.
0: Yeah, I think this is an interesting question, Nick, uh, about Bryce Harper, because on the good side, he could be back, as you said, as early as next week, but a forearm it may have had already some effects on his ability to hit the ball. You got a bad bruise on, on your left forearm, and your it, it's your power hand on and a left-handed swing, and maybe uh, he's a bit slow in recovering. As that said, I think as soon as he's activated, you have to activate him.
3: Right, and then you know if you're if you're in a league like me, I've got him in a, in a, uh, in a league that sets lineups on on uh, Monday for the week. So do you do you put him in your lineup for next week or not? It's a difficult
0: question. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where if you're in that situation, you just have to watch the news as closely as you can. Maybe maybe uh, if you have a, a subscription to The Athletic, check the Philadelphia reports or maybe look at the Philadelphia newspapers, the sports sections online or you know, Google search Bryce Harper injury or something like that and try to find out what's going on because you you, you don't want to have him in your roster if he's not going to play, but you definitely do if he is and you can't afford not to uh in Atlanta, another outfield injury, Marcel Ozuna hit the IL after dislocating his middle and ring fingers of his left hand. That sounds painful. <laughs> Phil hurts, but for playing you. time today, says Ozuna will be out until at least July. Uh, Nick, we know Ozuna has been a major disappointment so far in 2021, primarily because of a big power outage, as Greg Pyron actually covered recently in Facts and Flukes at BaseballHQ.com. But somebody has to go and play the outfield in Ozuna's spot. So where is Phil Hertz looking?
3: Ozuna has really, as you said, been very disappointing. Batting two thirteen with a six forty-five OPS and around 10 bucks in fantasy value. Uh, but Atlanta does not have an obvious replacement. So the team will likely miss him, especially considering the alternatives. On the current active roster, Atlanta has Guillermo Heredia and Indor Inciardi, both of whom can see a bump in playing time. Uh, Heredia has been a pleasant surprise contributing a 272 expected batting average with a couple of homers. Enciardi has missed most of the season so far, has only 29 at-bats and eight hits.
0: You said uh, Heredia and Enciardi are the alternatives as far as the active roster is concerned. But Nick, what about beyond the active roster?
3: The Braves also have Christian Pache and Drew Waters, their number two and three prospects. Pache is off to an awful start with Atlanta. Seven for 63, a 111 batting average, one home run and then he hit the I.L. earlier this month with a hamstring injury. Um, Phil reported Pache was about to start a rehab stent at AAA 10 days ago, but he hasn't even played there yet. Uh, Waters is playing at Gwinnett. He's batting .250 with a 787 OPS, three homers, and about 75 plate appearances. The big issue with Waters is plate discipline. He has only about a 70% contact rate, over 1,350 minor league plate appearances, and only 97 walks.
0: Yeah, and those figures translate pretty closely when you move to the major leagues. We discount them fairly heavily uh, as you move up. So a 70% contact rate at AAA probably works out to a 65 or 64% contact rate. Uh, at the big league level, and that's really, even in this day and age, if you're not crushing home runs all over the place, which is not Waters' uh, usual pattern, then uh, it's very difficult to maintain a place on a roster. I read on an Atlanta blog where they were worried that Major League pitching, and the quote here is, eat him alive. They were talking about Waters' and that he's just not ready. So don't bid the farm in this weekend's fab. Even if they do call him up, uh, it may may be a disappointing uh, outcome. In Miami, speaking of disappointments, third baseman Brian Anderson is going to miss several weeks. He's got a partial shoulder dislocation. Uh, how did the chips fall in Miami?
3: The Marlins activated Eson Diaz off the IL to take Anderson's roster spot. The initial expectation is that Diaz will share time with John Birdie at third base. Uh, Diaz doesn't look like an answer unless the question is who who cannot hit big league pitching. Uh, he has yet to crack the Mendoza line at about 250 uh, big league at-bats. In 2019, uh, batted 173 over 179 at-bats. Uh, played briefly in 2020, went four for 22. Uh, so far in 2021, he's seven for 50. He, that's a 140 batting average. So, and his skills aren't a source of optimism. Uh, XBA for a major league career is 195, although he does have a career expected power index of 111. Uh, Birdie hasn't been much better than Diaz. He's 18 for 99 this year, 181, although his XBA of 255 suggests he's deserved a a better fate than that. Birdie also has a 252 batting average, 253 expected batting average over his career. So around 250, it looks like a true talent level. He's also drawn enough walks, 11% career walk rate, that his career on base percentage is around 325. That's important because Birdie has been a source of stolen bases over his career. He has 31 career bags and 493 at-bats, including 17 over 256 at-bats in 2019 and 9 in 102 at-bats during the shortened 2020 season. So if we had to recommend one, it would be Birdie, but we're not managing the Marlins, so fantasy managers want to see how Don Mattingly handles this in Anderson's absence.
0: I had a a lot of optimism about John Birdie coming into the season. I drafted him in a couple of spots based not only on his stolen base potential, but also he plays all over the field. So he's one of those guys that, you know, in this day and age of constant injuries, uh, John Birdie was a guy, if you need a third baseman, in he goes. If you need an outfielder, in he goes. If you need a second baseman, practically all over the field. And unfortunately, everywhere he has gone so far this year, it hasn't really worked out that well. And Don Mattingly seems to have cooled off on uh, John Birdie, that's for sure. Uh, in San Francisco, first baseman Brandon Belt. Nick was having a bit of a power breakout this year. Uh, people have been waiting for this for a long time, I have to say. He had eight home runs in 114 at-bats, which is a mid-40s home run pace for a full season. But he went on the I.L. this week with a dreaded oblique injury. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the National League West for playing time today. What happens in the city by the bay?
3: Belt was lifted from his Tuesday game against the Arizona Diamondbacks and later put on the I.L. We built injury time into Belt's projection anyway, so no big changes so far. A right-handed hitting Darren Ruff was in the lineup at first base Wednesday night against righty Merrill Kelly, suggesting that he could be a beneficiary of, uh, of Belt's absence. But Ruff is hitting only two twenty-eight, through 79 at-bats, but then who isn't this year? Uh, Ruff also posted a three sixty-one on on-base percentage and a .506 plugging at six home runs, suggesting that he's now roster-worthy in most fantasy leagues.
0: Yeah, that's important to keep in mind uh, from a fantasy perspective, Nick. Uh, we look at that two twenty eight batting average and think, eh, I don't know. But in the big leagues now, I think they're all pretty accustomed to ignoring batting average and focusing on on-base percentage. And if, if Ruff has a... 361 on base percentage. That's above average, and uh, if you add it in with his slugging percentage, he's over 860 for an OPS, which is also very, very playable. And major league managers are going to look at that, especially if he's amassing those kind of numbers against same side pitching. Then all of a sudden, he does look roster worthy in fantasy leagues because he's going to play. Yeah, if he's
3: going to play, absolutely, he should be on your roster because, especially in an OBP league, uh, because that's a that's a strong OBP and Great slugging to go with it.
0: In St. Louis, outfielder Harrison Bader was on the I.L. earlier this year, came off the I.L., went 16 for 73, had four homers, three stolen bases, all systems go. Now he's back on the uh, injured list with a hairline fracture of a right rib, which sounds very painful. I've had some rib problems, and it really hurts, especially when you turn your upper body. So it's not ideal for somebody who swings a bat for a living. Uh, the Cardinals recalled first baseman John Nagowski. What are they going to do with the outfield situation while Bader is out again?
3: Bader had only one hit in his last 20 at-bats, maybe struggling with the injury. It's not clear how much time he'll miss, but we've made a significant downward adjustment in his projected at-bats. Nagowski returns less than a week after being sent to AAA. While he's started to play some outfield in the minors, expecting to be on a bench piece who might make a very occasional start. The two outfielders who might get a bump in playing time are Lane Thomas and Justin Williams. Thomas had a nice debut in 2019, but has struggled since then. He's 3-for-20 with two steals so far this season. Williams is getting his first extensive amount of playing time this season. He's 17-for-101 with three homers.
0: 17-for-101 doesn't sound like a formula for long-term success.
4: It does not, very definitely.
0: Staying in St. Louis, uh, right-hander Miles Michaelis was pitching for the first time in 19 months just this week and pitching well. Four innings, uh, three hits, a walk, only one earned run. He had three strikeouts. Then in the fourth or the fifth inning, he walks off with the trainer. And the initial reports were forearm tightness, which is bad news with a great possibility of getting worse, as we know, especially for a pitcher who sat out all of 2020 with a forearm problem and then missed the first month and a half this year, with shoulder problems. Uh, The Cards put Michaelis on the 10-day IL, recalled uh, right-hander Junior Fernandez from AAA. Uh, Phil Hertz covering the story for playing time today. So what's the latest on the St. Louis rotation? I think they had plans that changed. Yeah, he has been sent,
3: uh, Michaelis had been sent for an MRI, and manager Mike Schultz said that uh, the right arm forearm is structurally intact. Uh, The Cardinals were about to embark on a 6 pitcher rotation that included Michaelis, With him out, it's likely they'll return to the standard five-pitcher rotation. Cardinals do have uh, Daniel Ponce de Leon and Johan Oviedo, both of whom made multiple starts for St. Louis in 2021 if they need a sixth starter. Uh, They call up uh, Junior Fernandez, made one appearance earlier this month, uh, gave up three earned runs in an inning headed back to Memphis. He had cameos in both 2019 and 2020 without much success. Over 16 innings in Major League Baseball, he has a 9.19 ERA. Although his XCRA of 4.34 paints a more optimistic picture. For now, he's not le- likely to pitch in high leverage situations. And as such, he won't be of much interest to fantasy
0: managers. Here's an interesting story that has come up this week, Nick. Just over a month ago, the Brewers traded Orlando Arcia to Arizona and it looked like they were clearing the decks in a clear vote of confidence for Luis Urias to take over at shortstop full-time. And then all of a sudden this week, they trade for Willie Adamas from Tampa. Uh, Dan Marcus covers uh, Milwaukee as part of the uh, National League Central in his Playing Time Tomorrow coverage. What does the arrival of Willie Adamas mean for the future of Luis Urias in Milwaukee?
3: Well, in the short term, that answer appears fairly clear, as Urias has been in the lineup only once since the acquisition through Sunday, and his inclusion in Saturday's lineup was solely to give Colton Wong, uh, second baseman, a day off at second base. On the other hand, the future remains a more complicated story. Urias is still only 23 years old, has experience playing all over the infield. Uh, and, and before before we get into the world of future playing time projections, it's worth noting why the team may have soured on him for 2021. An article by Will Salmon of The Athletic, the team believes that Urias has issues stem not from the physical side of the game, but from the middle side of the game. That's especially true on the on the field, in the field, where he had committed nine errors, performance was worth a minus six outs above average of shortstop. So getting him to work with coaches or perhaps even a stand in the minors could help him figure out that area of his game. It's also worth noting that Urias hasn't performed as poorly when playing defensively at second base, though so the position will be manned by Wong at least through this season. Uh, even so, and, and through 2022 as well, even so, the 2023 season will still be Urias' only uh, age 26 campaign. So, clearer path, both in the short and long term, third base, a position the Brewers have gotten minimal production from this season. Travis Shaw is certainly not the long-term answer at third base. Uh, even if Urias can get back on track, Shaw may not even be the short-term answer in the position. In other words, this story is far from written in stone. Uh, some potential there, certainly a guy I think you would not want to give up on.
0: I was thinking about that, and uh, his owners in a lot of formats, especially where you have limited reserve options, a lot of uh, Urias owners might just be cutting bait and throwing him back into the pool, and uh, or they might be disgruntled or disappointed in him and make him available on the trade market. And as a long-term pr- proposition in dynasty formats, keeper leagues, and so on, I think this might be a great time to buy low on Luis Urias. You mentioned that he was having trouble in the field, and we know, especially with young players, that sometimes they carry their fielding woes into the batter's box with them, and they can't get their mind clear to focus on the job at hand. We've seen it's it's a fairly common story in Major League Baseball. And the Brewers really seem to believe that he has the skills he needs to succeed, and they certainly seem to be willing to to go with it as much as they have to, albeit they think they have a playoff chance this year, so they're uh, trading for Adamus to shore up the position defensively and offensively while uh, Urias figures it out. But I, I think maybe this is a time to buy low, as low as Urias might ever be.
3: I think you're right. I mean, this is probably the lowest, uh, the, the cheapest you'd be able to get him in a dynasty league, and the question is just how do you rank him along with all the other prospects you may have already sitting on your roster.
0: And finally, speaking of guys that are maybe by low candidates, Luis Castillo of the Reds has been, I think we can fairly say a huge disappointment to his fantasy managers. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield included Luis Castillo among the players he covered in the speculator column this week, uh, all about revised downsides. And this is an exercise where Ryan looks at the baseball forecaster where some of the player comments have downside possibilities, downside speculations, I guess you could even say. And, uh, He's updating those downsides. And when he looked at uh, Luis Castillo, the downside got even worse.
3: Yeah, we're, we're getting far enough into the season to start asking do we take the L on Luis Castillo? Uh, consensus second round pick with firm forecaster support. Uh, been a one man wrecking crew to a lot of fantasy rosters at this point, including uh, a couple of leagues in which I had him on the roster. Uh, sure, a two plus run gap between ERA and XERA says he's been unlucky. Uh, Castillo's previously elite changeup isn't missing as many bats. Uh, 17% swinging strike rate, uh, 23% in 2020, and that's the strikeout rate. Velocity looks good. He's better a better warm-weather pitcher uh, than he is cold weather. So, But unless this turns around very quickly, yeah, you know, uh, the downside at this point is a 5.00 ERA-plus for the rest of the season. Uh, Phantom IL stint, uh certainly not a guy you want on your active roster.
0: Yeah, the one thing that uh, Ryan Bloomfield pointed out was that the changeup swinging strike rate was really elite at that 23% level, and it falls off by six points, and you have to figure it out. But the interesting thing that you mentioned in there was Ryan also had Luis Castillo a week or two ago, and I think we even talked about it here on Baseball HQ Radio, Nick. And the problem might have been related to cold weather. He's a bad cold-weather pitcher, and at the start of this season, in the early going, it's been unusually cold, especially where he happened to be pitching. Uh, again, if you are in a position to do some speculating, I think this might be a, a really good chance to kept, catch a guy who's just waiting for the sun to shine, basically.
3: Yeah, I th- Yeah, def- definitely. I think it might be. As you said, he's he has been a much better warm-weather pitcher. Uh, and so it's, it's the kind of thing where if you can, if you can get him now and stash him off your your active roster until we see a turnaround, it's I think worth doing.
0: Let me ask you, because you play in in more dynasty leagues than I do. I play in none, so even if you just have one, you're ahead of me in that department. But in that dynasty keeper format, Nick, when you look at a situation like Luis Castillo, and assuming you don't have Luis Castillo on your roster, you would have to go out and acquire him. How do you calibrate the kind of offer you want to make? How do you calibrate the amount of risk you think you're absorbing by... Trading for a guy like Luis Castillo, who has all the talent in the world, but just doesn't seem to be putting it together anymore in the way that he used to be.
3: That, that, that's a good question, and I, you know, for me, I, I guess maybe I'm kind of unusual, but i don't I don't like to roster uh, in a dynasty format pitchers uh, too far ahead of when they're going to be successful. Uh, I still, what you still have to wonder if there's an injury somewhere in the background with Castillo that's causing any of this sounds like right now like it could be a mechanical issue that's causing the, the drop in that that swinging strike rate on the changeup. um so you know if i can get him cheaply enough i think i would uh, i would consider doing it if i could trade somebody that i'm going to drop anyway and pick up castillo that might be a decent move uh, i'm certainly not, not going to give up uh, a good hitter for Luis castillo at this point pitchers are just too risky
0: you know 2019 he was a, a over twenty dollars in five by five value this year minus twenty dollars in five by five value and it just seems like you know I, I know that it's dangerous or you know ill-advised maybe to compare uh, valuing ball players for fantasy purposes the same way you think about stocks for investing purposes but gosh if I had uh, saw a company that was you know a, a, a real producer two years ago and, and was earning money hand over fist, and then there was some relatively unexplained decline that those are the kind of things that at least have to pique your interest yeah i think
3: i think very definitely they can they can kind of pique your interest on the on the flip side uh especially this season there are a lot of pitchers out there uh a lot of pitchers who are doing very well a lot of pitchers still in the waiver wire who are doing very well so i would be careful what i gave up for luis castillo but on the other hand as someone who has him on on my uh, roster sitting on the bench i'm not going to get rid of him
0: Well, I'll be talking about Luis Castillo a little more with Todd Zola in part two of our discussion in a few minutes. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll catch up with you again next week.
3: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Good to
4: be here, PD. Uh, from the Americans, happy Memorial Day weekend.
0: Yes, and from the Canadians, happy Victoria Day weekend just passed. I guess I should have mentioned that last weekend, but uh, as long as everybody's having a good time, then that's all that matters. Uh, Memorial Day, Ray, uh, Ron Chandler always used to say is kind of when we can really start understanding what we have by way of our teams. How do you feel about that?
4: I keep waiting for something to break loose. I feel like I have a lot of teams treading water in the middle of the pack, and you know, I kind of thought that, uh, you know, positive momentum might come on its own, but maybe I need to uh, shake the tree a little bit and uh, prime that pump or something because uh, it's not happening on its own. And it's as we've as we just said when we were talking about some of my uh, Tout Wars moves last week, the uh, the time for passivity is coming to an end.
0: Yeah, I've got a, a team in Tout Wars it's still bouncing around a lot. The categories still seem to be very tight, and the whole situation seems to be unsettled. I was actually making my way up the standings, and I was kind of sniffing around, possibly getting into the top half of the standings, which at this stage of the game would, would have been a, a great improvement. Then just the other night, uh, I had, I don't know what. 10 ERA or something like that because uh, Yusmero Petit just got hammered and uh, my OBP for the day was 208 or something like that with uh, one hit, you know, and no no RBIs, no runs. And all of a sudden, I, I, I've dropped like seven points in two days. And uh, I thought to myself, I th- it would be easy to be disappointed by this, but the fact that I'm bouncing around so much is actually in a strange way a little bit reassuring
4: yeah it's, it's it's a great point it, it, as you say that it's got me you know it's got the gears turning a little bit um i don't know that i have the capability to study this but i kind of wonder with all the injuries going on and everyone taking zeros in their lineups because a guy is disappearing every week i wonder if all of our denominators are a little lower than they usually are at this point in the year maybe that's why the the ratios are bouncing around a little bit more in the uh the uh, you know, the counting stats are still a little more bunched than you normally would be because we've all got a few, a, a few less at-bats and things pitched than we would normally have accumulated by Memorial Day weekend just because we're seems like we're, everyone's got two or three guys a week missing three or four games or going on a DL midweek and you can't do anything about it until the weekend and that kind of stuff.
0: It may be even more so with uh, single league formats because yeah. you know you lose a hitter and and at least in a in a mixed league format you can dip into the free agent pool and you know get yourself a Corey Dickerson or a guy like that. But in uh, an American League only league, you you lose a shortstop and you, you're just done. You're going to be carrying that spot. I mean, you can add a a body. But the body is so relatively unhelpful that you might as well just keep the zero. And in fact, a lot of guys I know will keep the zero because they're afraid the guy's going to come in and, and nail you with a you know two oh five on base percentage, right? Or a, or a oh, one ninety. for zero ever. is better than zero for ten. Yeah, you know exactly. Especially since the payoff is only going to be you know maybe a run here and RBI, RBI there, and if you're really lucky, maybe a stolen base. But uh, sometimes that calculus is is something that you have to do. Anyway, uh, on to the show. Uh, I always like to start with some good news uh, on the rare occasions when we have any, and the Royals could certainly use some, and they got some. They activated shortstop Adalberto Mondesi from the IL. Hadn't played at all this year. Jock Thompson on this story for playing time today. Obviously, Mondesi plays, but who doesn't?
4: The transactional cha- cha- loser was uh, Jake Newberry, who got sent down. But it's in terms of playing time, it's really Mickey Lopez that we're looking at as the uh, playing time, uh, you know, deduction here. Uh, Lopez has hit 230 with a 317 OBP, and I think a lower a lower slug than his OBP. is slug is 310 through 126 at bats of filling in for Mond- for Mondesi. He's made a decent, you know, he's got decent plate skills. He's made contact 83% of the time. He's walking north of 10%. Uh, stolen five bases, but just, you know, for all that contact, nothing good happens when bat meets ball. It's just all soft contact and ground balls. And, you know, he's really just been a placeholder. So he goes to the third middle infielder status and Mondese steps back in here.
0: And as Jock Thompson pointed out, when kc looks at their bench they need maybe a more potent bat than uh, Nicky lopez can provide although there's something to be said for a, a guy who can start an inning maybe a pinch hitting and, and get on base steal a base move around you know cause some trouble that kind of thing but definitely a big downgrade for Nicky lopez we're projecting see for 30 plus stolen bases the rest of the way but only a 250 batting average comfortable with that projection
4: I think so. I think if, if you're a modesty owner or a modesty watcher, I think that the short-term thing to pay attention to here is his lineup spot. Uh, his first game or two back, I noticed he's back in seventh, which seems like sort of an odd place for him. I know when they were worried about his OBP there, he would sometimes drop down to nine, which was a pretty decent spot to let him run from. But uh, you know, hitting seventh the other night, I saw one lineup where he was seventh and Jorge Soler was sixth, and I mean, Jorge Soler is not getting on base at all either, but if Jorge Soler gets on base in front of him, that's going to tamp down the stolen base opportunities. So, I, I, you know, obviously the best case for Mondesi owners would be to see him move back up toward the top of the order, but uh, even the bottom of the order might be better than six or seven. That could be a bit of a dangerous spot for the stolen bases. We know he's got the skills to run, but the variables are going to be, does he stay healthy? And to, to some extent... Uh, you know, does the lineup position allow him to, uh, to flash that skill for us? So that's what I'm going to be watching for the short term.
0: And is there any concern that they're going to ask him not to run so much and trying to keep him on the field? That's something that happens every time uh, you have a, a base dealer who goes on the IL and uh, you know has some kind of issue. It happened with uh, Fernando Tatis in the National League, of course, when he came back, and, yeah. the, and the story was the team was asking him to rein in his, uh, you know, balls-to-the-wall type of uh, playing approach. Would they go to Mondesi and say, look, we're hitting you 6th or 7th to ease you back in, and we'd like you not to steal bases for the time being till we're sure that everything's kosher?
4: I mean, maybe for the short term. I mean, I, 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 for the longer term, if I'm the Royals and I – and I employ Albert, Alberto Mondesi. I don't know why I employ him, if I'm going to give him a red-white on the basis. But, you know, yeah. it's kind of like what we were saying about earlier. You know, Nicky Lopez is really just frankly had such a such a noodle bat that, you know, even a non-running Mondesi is an upgrade on him. So you're right. For a couple of weeks, if they want to just get Mondesi comfortable or see what this lineup construction works like, looks like, and try to take advantage of the, of the, bat upgrade from Lopez to Mondesi and see if they can lengthen the lineup with him a little bit. We, we might see this last for more than a couple of days. It might be it might very well be more than just a transitional thing. We're going to have to wait and see.
0: And of course, I should point out that the injuries are different between uh, what Mondesi had, an oblique strain versus uh, Tatis had a shoulder issue and they were worried about him diving into second when he was stealing bases. So maybe if they think his oblique is okay, it's not really super affected by running the bases.
4: Well, he's had, uh, minus he's got his own history of shoulder problems too. So that's not the current, not the current injury, but still a concern.
0: The New York Yankees had some bad news and some good news. Uh, The bad news, they placed right-hander Corey Kluber on the IL with what was first called shoulder tightness when he left the game and then later diagnosed as a subscapular strain. My first thought was subscapular sounds like a word that Shaggy would use to describe something great on (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Gee, Scoob, it's subscapular. But it isn't that.
4: <laughs> yeah, including a, uh, you know, it sounds like a, not just shaggy, but describing like a six-foot hero sub or something,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but the, anyhow, subscapular is not great.
4: No, it's not. And, you know, it's funny. My first thought with that was that Kluber did something, in, you know, it was, you know, the troubles in the all arise and, uh, you know, his first start after his no hitter from last week. And I was like, oh, well, another case of a guy goes and yeah you know, works too hard and there's no hitter and shoulder doesn't hold up to it uh but you know it's it looking back at the game log afterwards I sort of had to correct my own thinking on that because uh you know the no hitters we've had this year sort of all start to run together at some point but Kubers was remarkable in how efficient it was he got through the whole game in 101 pitches and it's not you it know his no hitters not even as high pitch count for the year he had thrown another 101 and 103 a couple of starts before that so I don't think we can really say that it's uh you know related to the anything to the no hitter maybe just to the workload in general and maybe the maybe the surprising thing is that we got 10 starts from Corey Kluber before he broke down
0: yeah and you would think in a no hitter anyway he's going to be pitching almost entirely from the windup so he doesn't have and he doesn't have any uh high stress on base situations he's not having to really bear down with bases loaded and you know one out or something like that he basically cruised through the game in relatively low-stress manner. And then all of a sudden, this happens. He's had problems with his throwing shoulder. He tore a muscle last year, I think. Terrace major, Terrace minor, sounds like a constellation. But he he tore that. And, and, uh, of course, he's had a couple of other injury problems over his career as well. Uh, Chris Olson reporting on this for playing time today says Kluber is definitely not going to throw it even uh, for the next four weeks, and then he'll get a second examination. In the meantime, who gets Kluber starts in New York?
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's a significant gap in the rotation because, like you said, you know, you do the math on that four weeks of not throwing, and even in the best case, if they let him start throwing in four weeks, he's basically starting from you know the beginning of spring training again. It's probably another four weeks for him to get ramped up and back to back into a rotation you, you very quickly start looking at it you know the all-star breaker later here so you know who were we looking at i'm um, michael king was the guy who came out of the bullpen when kluber left in the third inning the other night and that's often an early tell from the manager about how you know just in the moment what he's thinking about uh filling the rotation gap five days later so that's something we're gonna watch um he's had some shiny surface stats this year but you know, he's also been a little fortunate, 27% hit rate, 86% strand rate. So we're going to tap the brakes on that a little bit. Um, you know, but this might also be the opening for Davey Garcia, who we saw in New York last year, um, and has been, was at the alternate side of now triple A, but you know, worth remembering, he's not dominating triple A. He's allowed 900 runs, in 16 innings, uh, 21 strikeouts to 12 walks. So, I mean, the strikeout rate's great, but 12 walks and 15 innings in AAA does not translate well to the majors. So may very well be king for a starter two until they're happy that Garcia has, uh, you know, reigned in the command a little bit and it looks like he's ready to succeed in New York. That's just our early read. I'm sure we'll get some guidance from uh, Aaron Boone and company soon.
0: Chris Olson reports both of those guys are going to be looking back in the rearview mirror at the looming image of Luis Severino.
4: Yeah, that's right. That's the long-term answer here. Of course, there could always be another opening in the rotation, uh, so there might be room for more than one more than one of these guys over the next eight weeks. But uh, Severino has been checking all the boxes and getting good marks in his uh, Tommy John rehab. He's probably about to transition from uh, just throwing bullpens to getting into game action. You know, he'll still still need to get stretched out probably a month or maybe a little more away. But uh, you know, if, if it's a race between him and Kluber back to the rotation, I'd probably think Severino right now.
0: Staying with the Yankees, they did get some good news. Uh, they activated outfielder Giancarlo Stanton from the IL. I guess more DH than an outfielder these days. He had a quad strain, but bad news always comes with the good, With the good, it seems. Uh, Stanton returns to action, but at the same time, Luke Voigt returns front to the IL with an oblique strain after already missing most of the season with a knee injury. And of course, Aaron Hicks is done for the year with some wrist surgery. How does all of this shake out? There's a lot of moving parts here, Ray.
4: Yeah, there are, and you know, in terms of the day-to-day reaction to Stanton coming back, it's actually net zero. It's just Stanton for void, and it means that you know there's sort of a competition going on between a bunch of Yankee hitters who aren't doing much. There's an opportunity for anybody from you know it's probably going to be DJ Lemayhew and Mike Ford at first base, which. Could open up second for Rutte Um, Miguel Andujar had been getting a, the DH at bats with Stanton out, but now he can get into the mix in the outfield or first base or DH if Stanton gets his glove going. There's Clint Frazier who's still playing fairly regularly, but isn't hitting at all and is going to have to swing the bat sooner or later, or his job is going to be, uh, you know, getting some pressure as well. So I, I think we talked about these guys before, but it's really going to be. A, you know, a meritocracy of probably the first one who shows any signs of life with the bat is going to get the bulk of the playing time.
0: And of course, uh, with Hicks out, it looks like Brett Gardner has a bit of an edge just defensively because uh, Frazier, as we've discussed in the past, uh, not exactly a, a, a miracle worker with the mitt.
4: Oh, I was looking for a 1970s, uh, you know, Mickey Rivers reference or something there. But yes, <laughs> you're quite right. Um, yeah, it, Gardner gets the bulk of the center field as much as he can handle. And it's actually a place where you, you would think the Yankees are going to make a move. I think they're carrying Brian uh, Lamar as kind of the other, you know, center fielder in case of emergency on the roster now. But there's probably something to happen there. I know last week or so there were some rumors about the lineup, of the Shields coming to New York, and it seems like. That never got consummated, but if nothing else, that's sort of a trigger that the Yankees are in the market and Brett Gardner probably can't play you know, all 110 remaining games in center field, so they're going to want to find somebody who can take a little bit of the load off them there.
0: In Cleveland, the rotation also took a hit this week. They put right-hander Zach Plesak on the injured list with a non-displaced fracture of his right thumb. Tom Kephart covered the story for playing time today, and aside from limiting Plesak's hitchhiking career, what are the effects here?
4: Well, I think act seems to need a lesson from what I understand in taking off his jersey because apparently he was, you know, doing some kind of incredible Hulk thing with ripping off his jersey after a bad outing. And that's how he uh, took, out, t- took out his thumb there. So we got to work on that. Uh, but, you know, the it's a bad timing for the Indians, there are no good times for these things. But act goes down right after uh, Tristan McKenzie was uh, demoted to AAA. So they've got two rotation vacancies to deal with and their options aren't great. So they called McKenzie right back to start um, on Wednesday night. He did pretty well. But for the other spot, even even assuming McKenzie sticks again, we're looking at Cal Quantrill or Logan Allen and Kirk McCarty, the latter two from the left side. Quantrill's been good in surface stats out of the bullpen, a 190 ERA in 24 innings, but the underlying numbers are not nearly as good. His... uh, Walk-and-strikeout rates are pretty shaky. His, ER, his expected ERA is all the way up at 469, nearly three runs worse than what he's actually sporting. Allen, meanwhile, uh, five April starts uh, were pretty shaky. He had 12 strikeouts to seven walks in 16 innings before he was sent down to get work in AAA. McCarty's off to the best start in AAA of, you know, we're better than Allen and, you know, probably – you know, showing the, the most effectiveness as a starter right now, but he's not a top prospect in their org, and you know, it's, it remains to be seen whether that's just 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 a couple of good starts there. But performance may dictate that he gets an opportunity sooner than later here, just to just to see if it carries over.
0: And basically, the best of some poor choices. Sometimes you look around and say, this guy's not doing well, that guy's not doing well. That guy's doing well in AAA, which is surprising, but, you know, it's still right. better than guy A and guy B. Uh, Cleveland also sent D.H. Fran Moraes to the IL. He's got an internal oblique strain. That surprises me. Is there such a thing as an external oblique strain? Like a, <laughs> it's over there on the couch. How oh, would you <laughs> my
4: torso like? I don't think so.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he figures to be out for five to seven weeks. Ray, this seems to leave a hole in what was already a pretty anemic lineup in Cleveland. What can they do?
4: Yeah, they're really grasping at straws here. You know, we talked uh, last week about sending Andre Jimenez to the minors and giving shortstop back to Ahmed Rosario. So the call up here for Reyes is a little interesting in that context because they called up uh, infield prospect Owen Miller. Uh, he's a you know he's not a top prospect. He was rated as a seven C in our prospect rating scale, which is an average starting infielder potential. But they called up another infielder to replace Reyes and. You know, that gives them some flexibility, I guess, to move a Ros- move Rosario around again. But kinda like what you were just saying in the pitching side, it might just be that you know, they're they're playing the performance game here because Owen was hitting in triple A. Yeah, you know, sixteen games so far. He was hitting four oh six. And he's a career three fourteen hitter in the minor league. So with so many lineup spots not performing for the Indians here in Reyes, one of the only guys who actually was um, you know, delivering at the plate out now. I think they, they may just be looking for anybody who can make anything happen at the plate, and they're going to give Miller a shot here, and we'll have to see how, from a lineup from a lineup construction perspective, what that means. But uh, Miller may get a cracker.
0: Staying in the American League Central, Detroit put catcher Wilson Ramos on the 10-day IL with a lumber spine strain. This is just a week after he had been activated from the IL. What happens behind the plate, or maybe the pizza plate, in Detroit?
4: Yeah, they're, you know, it's funny. I, I was, as a Ramos owner in a couple of weeks, I was trying to figure out what was going on when they activated him last weekend. He, as you said, he was out with the same injury, and then he came off the DL, and they, in retrospect, seems like they were being cautious with him and knew he wasn't quite right yet because they DH'd him a couple of times over the weekend and kept all three of their catchers on the, on the active roster. Uh, Eric Haas is the primary winner here. Um, but it almost looked like they were hedging their bets or weren't sure Ramos was ready, in which case as a bitter Ramos owner, I want to say, well, why did you activate him at all? Um, but Haas probably continues to get the work here. Uh, he was hitting well in AAA and has continu- carried that over a little bit uh, in the fir- during Ramos's first DL stint. Uh, he was 10 for 31 with a couple of homers, some decent underlying plate skills. Uh, you know, it's, Ramos had a good April. He socked uh, six home runs before going on the D L. But given the state of the uh Tigers rebuild here, he's if Haas continues to hit, you know, Ramos could get Wally pipped here or get moved to somebody else's uh with more current contending aspirations because Ramos is uh not part of the next Detroit winner, shall we say.
0: Staying in the AL Central some more. Minnesota Twins put a uh, disappointing Kenta Maeda on the IL. He's got a groin strain, expected to miss at least a couple of weeks, maybe three starts. They activated right-hander Michael Pineda from the injured list, so that's a kind of a swap. Uh, Pineda returned to action where he left off. Uh, Rick Green covering the story for playing time today. With Maeda out and Pineda in, what is the net outcome on the Twins rotation?
4: Yeah, so that's a direct wash in terms of the way the rotation stacks up. Pineda had only been out for a start or two and he came back off the DL and it was uh, was already stretched out. We didn't have to worry about any of that sort of stuff. He came out uh, the other night through six innings, gave up one run, walked two, struck out eight. You know, he's been really, really good. He's got a 262 ERA, uh, a whip just a tick under one, uh, 47 strikeouts to 12 walks, which is nearly four strikeouts per walk, and 45 innings this year. So, you know, he slides right back into the rotation and is going to be a fixture there as long as he's healthy. While, meanwhile, you know, while Maeda's out, Randy Dobneck got a start the other day and he may get a couple of more. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if he's really stretched out to go five or six innings, at least for the next outing or two. But if Maeda's uh, run dictates that he misses more than a couple of starts, it's probably an opportunity for Dobnek. And I'll be curious whether. You know, the way Maeda was pitching, I would think that if you know, if if only to work on things and try to try to start getting better results, you know there but there might be a decent rehab stint there. They might ask him to pitch more than once in the minors even when the gro- the groin is quieted down, just to try to get him right before he comes back to Minnesota because he was brutal.
0: Dobnack was something of a tout darling. A lot of sleeper lists had Randy Dobnack at the start of the year, and he came out not exactly firing, more like uh, just struggling for his first eight or nine appearances Then they sent him to the minor leagues. He came back this week. Uh, Pitched at Cleveland, which is uh, as easy a a challenge as you're going to get, but he pitched well. He six innings, he won the game. I I think he uh, gave up no earned runs, had uh, five strikeouts to two walks. I mean, it was a pretty good outing for Randy Dobnak, and that comes on the heels of what I've read was a pretty decent, well-focused Performance while he was in AAA getting things sorted out. Uh, is there any chance that maybe Randy Dobnak's someone that we should be looking at? He's in a lot of free agent lists because of his poor start to the season. Uh, would you be looking at Randy Dobnak?
4: Yeah, I was one of those tattoo who had some pieces of uh, Dobnak to start the season. You know, he was one of those guys that we thought might have some value as a second man in a, or a multi inning reliever. You know, working a couple of times a week for two, three, four innings at a pop, and he was doing that in the early going for the Twins. The only problem was he was you know getting completely tattooed. Yeah. There was a, uh, you know, there, there was a, uh, there was one night I remember he was on track for a three inning save in like a thirteen to thirteen to one game, and then gave up like five runs at the bottom of the ninth, including a an Akil Badu grand slam that uh you know really just tilted me for a couple of hours on the uh in the first week of the season. I was just furious at that. But, you know, there was a reason I was on him, you know, in the first week. And so many other people were, like you were saying, Uh, you know, the skills were interesting. You remember the preseason, the Twins gave him a five-year contract, which seemed like a very strong commitment for a guy who hadn't shown much in the majors yet. And, yeah, if if Maeda injury plus other things not going well in Minnesota create a good opportunity for him going forward, you know, I am interested for sure.
0: I remember that game because I had Dobnak and Akil Badu on my tout roster, but Dobnak was active and uh, Badu was on my bench. So it was a perfect night from uh, courtesy of those two guys, I have to say. The Twins also placed uh, utility man Luis Arise on the 10-day IL. He's got some problems with his right shoulder, a strain. Uh, what are the playing time ramifications for the Twins, who have been relying a little bit on Luis Arise?
4: They had been, and he's, you know he's... Picked up playing time from Byron Buxton, from Josh Donaldson when he was out, from Jorge Polanco, who had been out. Polanco came back off the DL here so uh, you know with his ankle injury cleared up, so he jumps back into second base, which is where Arias had been more recently, and that kind of stabilizes the starting lineup, but there's still a bench spot open from where Arias' utility role would have been you know, would, would have been staffed and Nick Gordon, I believe is up and may be up for more than just a couple of days. He's had, a, he's been up and down a couple of times. I think one of which was a doubleheader situation. Uh, so, so we might see some Nick Gordon. It might also be some more at-bats for, uh, Will who, you know, kind of masquerades behind the plate in all four corners. And, you know, as Donaldson and Sano and those people need day o- days off, uh, you know, he, he may pick up a few more of those with, uh, with Arias not, not available to help out with some of that work.
0: In Texas, the Rangers put uh, outfielder David Dahl in the 10-day IL. He's got a left rib cage contusion. Uh, they selected uh, outfielder Jason Martin from AAA and brought him up. Uh, what's the ramifications here for uh, playing time in Texas?
4: Yeah, so you know, with, with the cascading wave of injuries we've had, it was only a matter of time until David Dahl got caught up in it, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Jason Martin is probably a little bit interesting, more from the opportunity perspective than the skills perspective. Uh, I went back and looked. We had a call up report for him, for, for him when he uh, got called up by the Pirates last summer, and we tagged him as a 6B prospect then, which is essentially a reserve outfielder. Uh, but, you know, he was, you know, there's a little pop in his bat. He uh, had, you know, 25 doubles and eight homers back in his last full. Um, full season in 2019 that was uh, you know and then he's a left-handed so he's kind of a one-for-one drop-in for Dahl here so we haven't projected for 15 percent of the outfield playing time in Texas for the balance of the season right now but that probably means more like 40 percent or half the time for the next you know several weeks or a month while Dahl is out so The short-term opportunity and we'll see what he can do with the bat our projection is for a 225 batting average with a you know a home run and a stolen base over you know a couple of weeks worth of playing time but we'll see if there's a we'll see if there's a little more to be to to be garnered than that here.
0: Also in Texas, uh, they placed uh, Kohei Arehara, their uh, starting pitcher, on the IL. Looks like he's out for the year. He has some kind of uh, blood vessel problem, an aneurysm or something in his pitching shoulder. And Rod Truesdell, covering the story for playing time today, says that uh, Hyun Jong Yang figures to remain as a starter in Texas.
4: Yeah, they're going to plug Yang right in for Arehara here into and, and see how long he lasts in the rotation He's gotten off to a decent start, but then he got racked around uh, pretty badly earlier this week. He, his ERA jumped from three and a half to five and a half, which is what happens when you give up seven runs in a start in May. And that's what we ran into here. You know, Yang is a ground ball and control artist when he's on. You know, he's uh, only striking out uh, six, six guys per nine, six and change guys per nine right now. Uh, fastball, barely cracks 90 miles an hour. So he is not overpowering in any definition of the word. Uh, but you know, he's not getting the ground balls right now. His path to success is probably ground balls and control, but he's walking for more than four guys per nine and his, uh, ground ball, to fly ball ratio is even. So as long as those two things are pointing in those directions, it's really hard to come up with any recommendation, any positive recommendation here.
0: Also in Texas, Ray, we should point out that Kyle Gibson was sent to the IL. He's got a groin problem. And they recalled a couple of pitchers, a left-hander named Wes Benjamin and a right-hander, Demarcus Evans, from AAA, to replace him and Hunter Wood, who's also placed on the aisle with a right elbow problem. All of Boy, uh, talk about uh, musical chairs here. But the reason I bring this up is because in last week's frequent flyer, Alex Becky said, keep an eye on this guy, Demarcus Evans.
4: Yep, Evans is interesting. Maybe not in a starting role, but maybe it's somebody who uh, you know starts to pick up a bigger role in that bullpen as the, the, the cascading roles change here. I wonder if uh, Colby Allard is the guy who ends up slotting to the rotation, if only because he's been more of the multi inning reliever in, with, with that group now, and as that rotation gets squeezed, maybe that's one way they go. But Alex is right. Uh, you know, Demarcus Evans, you know, was a September call up last year. Who flew through a bunch of levels in a in two years? He's got a really good fastball with a power curve, sort of the classic, you know, potential closer role. Um, and we've talked, you know, so many times back in April, PD, about the way this bullpen sets up because Ian Kennedy has taken this role sort of by default, and that's not a dis- that's not a disservice to Kennedy. He's run with it. He's been very good in the closer role. But we've all been we were all sitting there waiting to see. Who was going to be the next guy to take it from him? Whether it was Jose Leclerc and Jonathan Hernandez and Joey Rodriguez, we've thrown so many names into the conversation here. But if Kennedy gets moved out of the role by trade or something else, then you know Evans, if he is effective, you will know, we'll probably jump to the top of that line pretty quickly. If you're speculating on second half closer.
0: In A Round Rock this year, uh, we had a report that he had uh, seven and two-thirds innings, 16 strikeouts, <laughs> and only four walks, which was kind of the trouble that people were wondering about him, especially when he goes to his breaking stuff. The command wasn't there. He's got a hundred-plus mile-an-hour fastball, and that always plays, but you have to have something else, and the, the knock on him from a prospect point of view is he didn't have anything else. You know, he did have uh, the curveball that you mentioned, a bit of a slider, but he can't place it and that's a real problem even if you're going to be a kind of a, a closer where you can get by for a while on one pitch even if it's a 100 a mile an hour fastball though they're going to catch up to it
4: yeah it's interesting i'll be curious to see how that fastball velocity checks out because in his first game only uh, i'm looking at the game lock here we only clocked it at 92 um, but you know that was two innings no hits one walk and four strikeouts in his first game the other night so that's, uh, that checks out with what you were saying in his minor league numbers. The uh, the big strikeout rate is there, and uh, I'm working four first pitch strikes to seven batters. We could do a little better than that, but only one walk at in two innings. He can, make, he can make a living with that. So uh, that's a starting point, and uh, we'll see how quickly he rises to the top of this bullpen
0: and I misspoke he doesn't have 100 mile an hour heat the analysis was that he succeeds without it which in a way is Uh, kind of even even more promising because that means he's doing something on the mound to survive without having this kind of over right and
4: I believe what he uh, specifically what he's doing is I believe he's one of these spin rate darlings that is uh you know he gets elite spin levels on on that fastball so it uh, you know, it, it tracks differently and, you know, kind of has that jump on it that uh, more so than you would expect from the from, from the fairly pedestrian these days, 92 miles per
0: hour. All right. 92 miles an hour and it's only pedestrians, not the pedestrians around here, I can tell you. <laughs> it takes them uh, a lot longer than that to just cross the street while I'm trying to make a right turn. <laughs> Anyhow, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. and We'll catch up with you again next week.
4: Hey, it'll be June when we talk again. Amazing.
0: Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, Series XM, and all those podcasts. Todd Zola coming back next on Baseball HQ Radio.
4: Pitches a high fly ball to right, deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track, to the wall. He's under it now, and it's taken away.
1: HQ
5: Radio
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN Rotowire Sirius XM and all those podcasts. Todd, welcome back. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, SiriusXM, and more podcasts that you can count. And I'm glad that this is one of them. Uh, Todd, welcome back.
2: Good to be back with you. Arms still ready ready to go. Rain really right. wasn't too long.
0: In another article that you had uh, in the Z-Files, we'll talk about that later, but you did make a highly useful comment about strand rate, which is also called left on base percentage, and it has to do with the timing of events. What was the point that you made there because I think it's key.
2: The timing of it all is a home run with a man on first and second is a three-run homer. A home, you know a solo shot is only one run and yes the pitcher can control to a certain extent when he gives up the home runs and you, the same sort of thing with you know if a guy if a if a guy pitches 6 innings and gives up 6 hits we call it scattering six hits, you know, right, because he, he was scoreless or whatever, one run, and he, you know, gave up six hits. You give up six hits in two innings, you're probably out of the game because you only pitched two innings because ton kind of runs scored. And when those hits occurred, again, it's not completely random. The pitcher has to make good pitches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's some randomness to the timing of the hits, the, the clustering of the hits. And how many were on base during home runs? So it could. It also, I mean, people think of left on base percentage. The first thing they think of is the bullpen. The bullpen, you know, screwed over this pitcher by letting the runs in. Therefore, the left on base percentage is low. It's not just the bullpen. It's the timing of the hits. Uh, and most more often than not nowadays, how many men are on base when the home on the pitcher gives up a homer?
0: And that is. It's, as you said, it's not exactly random, but it's something you have to factor in when you're looking at it. And one good way I found is take a look at the pitcher's whip alongside his ERA. And chances are, if if he has a high ERA but a low whip, then he's probably suffering from strand rate imbalance. And if the converse is true, he may be benefiting from a a strand rate imbalance the other way. That is, of the number of runners he's allowing, very few of them are scoring, relatively speaking, and so his ERA is depressed based on the whip. So I think if you look at whip and ERA in combination, relative to sort of normal levels i think you can infer what the strand rate's going to be and then you can go and check and see oh yes for sure and then if it's not like that then you have further work to do to try to figure out why is it that this guy's got a 101 whip but a 404 era and it and his strand rate seems normal there's something else going on here and it may be i don't know tons of hit by pitches or you know Bad fielding, allowing runners in, and bad bad official scoring. There's you know these kind of marginal things that can affect it. And four hundred four one hundred one is not going to happen because of those things. But you know three ninety and and uh, one ten might happen because of things that are not strand rate related. But I bet they are most of the time.
2: Right, and you you kind of alluded to it with relievers and starters. Uh, starters usually cluster around seventy two percent. The better starters, because you can control it, right? You can get out of jams and strike guys out, uh, in, in certain situations can, 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 tend towards 78%. And you mentioned relievers, the, one of the weird, you know, one of the, first of all, it's a smaller sample. So weird things happen, but you know, a, a reliever, especially a closer, you know, may give up uh, the game, a walk off and gave up a run and did not get to make the next two or three outs to get at least something into that denominator. Right. Allie, Allie, all he changed was the numerator, you know. In, in the he didn't change the innings. So a lot of times that's the case with with relievers. Maybe uh, messed up a little bit is because they just they had one of those terrible innings where they you know gave up a couple of runs. And I don't even know how the extra inning ghost runner matters. I know it's an unearned run, but you know that I think that has to be changing things just a little bit. But right, so I, I worry left, less about left on but I don't. When I'm analyzing, you know, Worldis Chapman, a, you know 91.9% left on base percent, someone else is going to write an article that says he's he's lucky. Um, I'm I'm not no I'm not going there because it, the small sample stuff like that. I mean I'll I'll do that on a pit on a starter, but I'm not you know I'm not going to base a you know be, be worried about this closer because of his left on base percent. So left
0: on base percentage strand rate is one of those things you can look at to assess a pitcher. In a Z-Files article last Friday, you discussed six underperforming pitchers, also the basis of a tout table report last week. I remember contributing to that, uh, asking the touts from the various Tout Wars leagues, uh, out of all these underperformers, who would you like, who don't, who don't you like, that kind of thing. Uh, let's right. talk first about the process of evaluating underperformers. And first, Todd, who? how do you determine... Whether a pitcher or a hitter, I guess for that matter, is quote underperforming.
2: All right. So the first cutoff, and I think most people do this already, is they look at their favorite ERA estimator, be it HQ's, you know, in-house metric, uh, be it XFIP, be it FIP, uh, DRA, Sierra, uh, Sierra. Right. I think those are. The, I think we've got, the, and, and actually, at this point, there is really, you know, Statcast expected ERA is right. another one, and I think that that's becoming one of the more common ones at this point. And if there's a delta, to me, that's, and unfortunately, that was a drop the mic, you know, time for some people in the TOT report. To me, it's a way to filter and take a look at the player because you kind of alluded to it. You want to know the reasons behind the delta, the discrepancy. I don't want to just graph out, not well, you know, uh, put a table and, all right, these are the guys that are most unlucky because the, the difference between their expected and their actual is the greatest. Therefore, there's mo- the most regression coming. I think you need to try to do a little bit of work as to what the cause of the discrepancy is and then make a judgment call as to will it correct, how much will it correct, et cetera. Um, down and dirty, yeah, all right, give me the list of the biggest differences. And there's most more, more than likely those are the unluckiest or luckiest. But if you want to take it to the next level, I don't think you can drop the mic at that point.
0: So underperforming is a guy who's uh, who's actual ERA is higher than is expected by a significant margin in in yeah. the first cut.
2: Yeah, right, right. If yeah, if you expect if your ERA is five point oh five and you know your expected ERA, whatever you want it to be, is four point two five. What it mean What it means is whatever you're using as your as your skills test and how you're doing the translation. Uh, if that pitcher would have throw a thousand seasons with those exact same skills, the ERA would come out to four point two five. It just happens to be you're in one of the thousand seasons that it's at five point oh five. Somewhere along the line it's going to be three point four and we would have talked, you know, in those thousands of seasons and he would have been talking about as being lucky that year. But if you you know you, you, you sim this you sim those skills infinite times, the ERA would come out to be four point two five based on whatever model that you're trusting.
0: And I think there might be a player valuation opportunity here for the canny uh, fantasy baseball player in dealing with his league mates, and that is there's a third kind of underperformance, and that is the kind of unperformance underperformance that subtracts the actual era from what that owner expected to the era to be and there may be another arbitrage opportunity where you know i expected that luis castillo was going to have a 275 era this year based on his you know, career performance, and Luis Castillo has a high ERA. It's higher than is expected, but it's way higher than the guy's expectation. And and if you know that, that's the point where you can go in with an offer because you know his perception of underperformance is even worse than the reality of underperformance.
2: Yeah, especially if you get paid to post 1400 fourteen hundred fourteen hundred of so-called expectations. You no, know, <laughs> people know. People know, and, and and you know what? I I don't blame them. I, you know, I, I subscribe to your site. I know that you think this guy is a, you know, you, you've got him projected for this, and, you know, uh, I, I'd, I'd like to trade him to you, and I know I could only – and they're not saying all this. I know if I traded him to, 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 to Davit I'd only get this player, but I know how much you like him, so I'm going to ask for this player instead. And they'd be, you know, a fool if they didn't use that, you know. Oh, of to, course. To yeah. be honest with you. You know, so – but, you're no, you're right. Um, that And that's, that's you know – that's kind of one of the openings of, of making a trade. You you can often make a trade where you don't have to tell your trading partner that your expectation is better than the market, right? You, and therefore, you can, you can offer back a slightly better player than someone else might offer back because you expect more from the player you're getting back. And on the surface, someone sees the trading, oh, geez, why did Zola make that trade? You know, you plug this into the little black box and, and you know, my the, the, the Mac engine says that he got ripped off. Well, in Zola's head, he, he's expecting more from that player than the, than the Mac engine or the fan graphs calculator or whatever calculator you're using.
0: So by whatever measure, Luis Castillo is underperforming. Uh, <sighs> I actually talked about Luis Castillo with Nick a few minutes ago. And <sighs> now I'm curious about the method. In social sciences, Uh, We start from a null hypothesis that the research is trying to disprove. And in this case, it would be Luis Castillo's performance is a fact. So when you're an actual scientist, uh, do you start from a null hypothesis that his performance to date is a fact or a fluke and that you're setting out to prove whether that null hypothesis is true or is it more fluid?
2: I think it's a little bit more fluid than that. Um, You know, One of the things we learned, you know, uh, you know, as a scientist, is, is you don't want to presuppose anything. You don't want to bias experiments. But yet, you know, if I'm putting two things together, I want to be pretty sure I'm not going to blow up the lab. You know, so it's not so. It's, there's kind of there has to be kind of a an in between. And the you know the, the the thing with Castillo is it's not it's not just the numbers and is it luck. There are narratives. You know, left and right, warm weather pitcher, cold weather pitcher. Uh, with the ball, is are the seams, the the higher seams, are they negatively affecting his ability to throw that devastating changeup? And now you add all this stuff together, is it affecting his confidence? Uh, it, it, so it, it, there's there's so many he's it, and there's so many different layers with Castillo because he was as you, you read the piece. He was over. Well, I should have. The, he should have been okay. We all want Louis Castillo on our teams. Of the next group of pitchers, who do you want the most? Because it was to a, a to a T. No one, you know, everybody wanted Louis Castillo. If I'm making a trade, I want Castillo. Then he went out and had another poor outing. Uh, but you know, still a little bit early. But that, you know, that's the fascinating thing, and why I think we'll both always have a job is, it's not just crunching these numbers into a calculator. It's trying to, you know, ascertain, figure out. All these different elements and land on a an expectation. You know, is he? Uh, is it the weather? Is it? Is it the? Is it the? Is it the ball? And we all have our different, you know, now uh, narratives and anecdotes about it. And so far, we're all wrong. All of us, when we do performance validation of pitchers in
0: particular, start by looking at those luck stats. We talked about strand rate earlier. A lot of us look at what Baseball HQ calls hit rate and the rest of the world calls BABIP and those kind of things. But referring back to your Twitter post that we talked about earlier, these pitchers have less than 10 starts and most of them are 50, 60 innings. How quickly do we expect those kind of luck-based stat strand and hit rates to stabilize at what
2: we can consider to be true player levels? In theory, the luck-based it should be independent of who they face. Now, the skills driving those calculations are affected by the quality of competition. Someone's so strikeout rate is is really low. Well, he's faced four teams that never never strike out. Wait till he the next time through the, the next month when he faces four teams that strike out a lot, and those things even out. Now that's different than a swing strike rate being out of proportion with your strikeout percent in general. I mean, so I, what I what I what I need what I try to do in some of these numbers is I look at so our right, K percentage is part of left on base percentage. You know, strikeouts are part of of that calculation why are the strikeouts low if they are low because the team faced teams that aren't striking out much? Well, I think that eventually will, will even out if the swinging strike rate is low. Well, that there, that could be bad luck right there. And regardless who the pitcher faces that should at least on paper uh, normalize. So again, you have to kind of, you know, not, it's not next level. It's like next, next level. First level is looking at the luck stat. The second level is trying to figure out what's going on with the inputs of that luck stat.
0: And then you could also throw in the variable of an umpire where you're talking about the new stat that everybody's using a string, swinging strikes plus called strikes is, uh, is something, uh, that I've been hearing about and it doesn't, and it can't take into account umpires, but, If you looked at it more granularly, you could probably find instances where a certain pitcher just happens to have got an awful lot of called strikes because he happened to get a lot of, you know, Angel Hernandez weird baseball calls going on, and happened to get him, you know, twice instead of the usual once or none, and those kinds of things. But that that brings us back to if you can't. Count on strand rate and hit rate. What about individual pitches? What's your philosophy of looking at them? Because there's a lot of them. You can't argue small sample when a guy's thrown, you know, hundreds or even thousands of pitches.
2: I look for try to look for differences, look for differences in distribution. Uh is he throwing more sliders and fewer cutters or whatever it might be? You can look at spin rate and you obviously look at velocity. But what I'm finding this year and Maybe this has been true every year, but I I think, you know, I'm just noticing it more this year. I did a study a few weeks back, you know, where are all these extra strikeouts coming from? And they're coming from off-speed pitches, and they're coming from pitchers working up in the zone. So I won't just look to see if, you know, the percentage of two-seam fastballs. I'll look to see where the pitcher's using them, because there's been an increase. It doesn't make, you know, intuitively, why, you know, a ball designed to sink, while you are throwing it higher? Um, but pitchers are getting more swings and misses on a two-seamer up in the zone. So that's the sort of third element. I look at velocity, spin, and I'm actually looking at location and just looking for differences. And this is kind of what you're talking about too, before with the, the scientific method. Um, I, it kind of – I look for the difference, and then I try to figure out what – what's happening because of that difference and you know that that's sort of the the, the experiment and then the, then the conclusion and it's not always the conclusion isn't always correct if you will but um to me that's sort of the third element of looking at actual pitches now is the location I mean, you, you don't want to get the ball high you don't want to get the ball high in the zone because it's going to lead to homers well with the uppercut swing it's a lot harder to get a, 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 a forceful uppercut swing on a ball higher in the zone. So that's why these two seamers, that's why things working up in the zone are more effective because you just, you, you can't put the same aggressive swing on a ball up in the zone. And thing about it. That is, and same with change ups, and this is why I can never be a pitcher other than the fact that I can't pitch. But um, I think it takes a lot of guts to throw a ball high in the zone or to throw a change up. You never, you don't want to get beat. With that, you know, but once you get in your, your, your thick skull that that's what's effective, then then maybe you do it. I could never throw a pitch not designed to be a strike. You know, I just can't do it, and that's that's why I play cash game DFS and not GPP. It's the same silly mentality. But in my, you know, you're gonna know that that the pitch is designed to fool the hitter into thinking it's a strike. But in my mind, it's like I can't not throw a strike on the fact that I can't throw a strike. <laughs>
0: there's another dimension in the assessing the pitches and that is pitch movement. And you said in your Castillo review that you don't use those advanced metrics yet. What's the delay? What are you still trying to figure out there?
2: Ah, oh, there's just so much. And I, I, I emailed our friend and colleague, you know, to see if he could help me out a little bit in the regards. And this specifically had to do with the changeup and they measure vertical drop and and they measure horizontal movement and they have it relative to with and without gravity and what I happened when I noticed with Castillo was it was different this year but I don't know if what if the number was if that made if it was better or worse I mean I assume it's worse because he's not performing as well but I'm not comfortable reporting the numbers and making that conclusion. Unless I really, really, really understand. I mean, if I'm taking a shot at some people in the industry and in analysis, maybe I am at this point, but I think there's a lot of people using analysis that they really don't understand. And it's misleading when they start to make judgments based upon some of this next level data without really understanding it. Uh, so I was just, I, you know, I did, like I said, I did email Eno, and, uh, you know, the answer is his, his metrics show Castillo's change up is not as effective by his stuff metrics he didn't uh, go into the, the, uh, the specific question that I asked him, but I just, I don't, I don't, I'm not learned enough. This is so much to know now, as you know, I'm not learned enough and to be able to look at the, 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 the movement based upon gravity, not gravity. I have an, a baseline understanding of it, but I don't know it well enough to be able to use it, you know, confidently and, and, you know, in my analysis where, you know, I, I, I get it. I understand it. I trust it. So uh, that was sort of the one open area. And hopefully I'll have time to take a look at it or, you know, go to a seminar. More often than not, you go to, you know, go to a seminar, you, you know, and someone explains it. And then you do the research on your own. But uh, once, they, once they got into this is the number without gravity and this is the number with gravity, then we got ahead of my pay grade.
0: Well, when I first saw that, I just thought I'm only going to go with gravity because until they start playing in outer space, you know, where they're all weightless and gravity's not having an effect, I'm sticking with uh, I'm sticking with gravity because it seems to be since since <laughs> Newton had that baseball fall on his head or however that worked, uh, you know, it's it's part of how the ball travels. So I'm going to go with it. But I know what you mean because when I first saw the information recorded uh, via uh, Baseball Savant, and you can download these tables, and you've got X moving and Z movement and all all of this kind of stuff. And your inclination right away is to think more movement is better. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for a bunch of pitchers who have tons of movement in both directions on this this particular pitch, and and I'm going to assume that that's better than pitchers who don't have that. And I did that, and I looked through it, and it wasn't true. You know, I found pitchers who were highly successful, who had those kind of characteristics on the particular pitch, and I found players who were highly unsuccessful who did still have – You know this kind of really big movement, and I don't understand why that is. So for now, I'm leaving it out of any time I I think about it.
2: I can help you a little bit with that. It's not. It's a little bit. You know, myopic view of it, but it's not the movement. It's the movement different than what's expected. Uh, We 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 don't notice it because you know if you if you play catch, we all play catch as a kid, right? When you play catch with a left hander. The ball always seemed to tail when you you know, but you didn't seem to tail with a right hander when you when you just playing catch. It does, but you just don't notice it because you're you're catching so many balls from right handers. Your mind is just trained and it just it's part of it. And I think the same the same thing you know, we, certain movement is expected and batters learn to hit that expected movement. They adjust the swing expecting it. When pitchers have movement more than that, then that's when you get the misses. Sometimes even less. Um, that's the thing with a, a forcing fastball. The spin doesn't add movement; it takes away movement. It's it it it, it 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 counteracts gravity with the overspin, and it doesn't drop as much. The batter swinging at a certain level, expecting the ball to drop to this level, but because it's got so much overspin, Trevor Bauer type overspin, it doesn't drop that high. And that's when you hit under the ball. So it's not the perfect answer for you, but it's not the movement; it's the movement different. Than what professional baseball players' brains are are trained to expect. Yeah, I think it's backspin
0: that causes the ride on on fastballs, right? The right, counter, right, 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 right. Counters right. And counteracts it. Topspin will right. make it tumble forward. Uh, you okay, think yeah. a little bit. So let's talk about some of the pitchers. Uh, how about where did you come down on Luis Castillo through this analysis of underperformers? Is he a buy? At the
2: t- you know yes, to me, I I, I could not disagree. But it was, it was more historical. It was more the back of the baseball card than any individual number. Well, he's been really unlucky here. That'll regress. It was, he's just always oh, been this good. He's going to be this good again. And wh- whether it is the weather, I don't know. But that was sort of the, that was the conclusion that I drew. And again, he went out and had a poor, nu- a poor performance. Right after we uh, did the did the table, now he stayed healthy. And the week before, we did the opposite for overperformers. And four of the five have now been hurt. So people were joking on Twitter about my, you know, using my powers for evil. Uh, Matthew Boyd is the only one that didn't get hurt, and people are probably mad that he didn't get hurt. Uh, But yeah, so so far the six that we talked about uh, have, uh, I believe anyway, have have been able to. not get under the Zola curse. Well, Ken Maeda, but he was, he was, we found out later, yeah. he already could have been hurt. Uh, he already could have, could have been hurt uh, as it was going on. But yeah, um, Castillo was just so tough just because the numbers are just so good. Now, even having said that, the knock against Castillo as, a, as an ace was his whip is always a little bit higher than you want from an ace. Now you, you start, you know, now you start to think about it. If your whip's high. What does that mean? That means you're putting more runners on. And if you're putting more runners on, doesn't that put your ERA in a little bit more peril? So, you know, may, maybe we're uh, maybe we should have been expecting some of this regression not to the level that we're seeing it. But if the knock on you is you put too many runners on, but you're able to get away with it, well, margin of error, you know, when not able to get away with it, and you're still putting even more runners on. That's what we're seeing.
0: How about Patrick Corbin? He's another underperformer that you took a look at.
2: Right. Now, with Corbin, uh, it's all about the slider. It, it, it just The slider is just not performing as well as it's been in the past. He throws it around 40% of the time. He's young enough that you wouldn't think that this is an age-related decline Until you keep in mind how stressful the slider is, and he's thrown I think the fifth most pitches in the league or the fifth most innings in the league you know for the past four or five years, 40% being slider, it could just be that his arm is aging faster than the rest of them just because of his pitch distribution and the fact he was so durable for so long. If you think that Corbin slider will come back or you think he'll figure out a way to overcome that and reinvent himself as another pitcher. Then I think there's a good chance of a bounce back. Now the very next outing after the piece, he went out and, and, and did pitch well. Then the are outing after that, he fell back down again. So if the, if the question, you know, will he get better? Sure. The numbers say, even, even with the lesser slider, the Babbitt was just so high. Uh, he was going to get better, but will he get to the point where he was a couple of years ago. No. So as far as the um, theme of the piece, he is not someone I was looking to acquire. I was not looking to buy low on Patrick Corbin.
0: Yeah, and that gets back to the perception issue that I raised earlier, which is right. in a lot of instances, if the expect if you're if your threshold for yeah, I'm interested in acquiring this guy is I believe he can resume past glories versus I believe he can be, you know, better than he is, but maybe not that high. Some people are just not going to make that jump and, and everybody's different. And I think the more cold blooded you are, the easier it is to say, You know, if he's got a 450 ERA and I expect him to throw to a 395, but the guy I'm dealing with thinks he's going to stay at 450, I'll take that gain, even though it's not like he's going to return back to 350 or 320 or something like that. It's just going to be a a sort of marginal or incremental gain, but that's how you win a lot of leagues sometimes is with incremental gains. How about Dylan Bundy?
2: Yeah, I'm actually eating a little crow on Bundy, at least to date. He was, I mean, other if the, if the question was, other than Louis Castillo, who do you want? My answer was Dylan Bundy. And you talked about this sort of thing with, with, with you know, luck as far as opponents go. I wouldn't have asked the question two weeks previous to when I did, because he was cruising and he ran into a Dodger team and a Red Sox team that hit him pretty hard. And he had two really poor performances that skewed everything, It just skewed everything. So, you know, my other, you know, I did look at things and I thought everything was fine. And the analysis was, um, you know, sure, you'd like your aces, your elite pitchers to rise to the occasion and and, and handle the better offenses as well. I know, you know, is, is better than than Bundy did. So I don't love that. But I thought, you know, long, long term, I thought it'd be fine. So then he went out. It's only been one outing since then. And it's not that you know, Oakland's got a pretty good team, but you threw two and a third, gave up a couple of homers, only struck out two. Uh, he gave up four earns and, and five hits in those two and a third. So at least the very next outing, uh, Bundy did not return, did not pitch as well as, as I hoped he would return. You know what though, to me, if, if people are now even more turned off on him, he's still a bylaw. I mean, he, I still want him. I still think he will end up being fine. Going to do hitters. Um, I might, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I I actually, well, we have a question now we may, I I. I probably would just cause I like to keep the table mixed up. Uh, I may, may do something with hitters, uh, coming out. I think we did something with hitters previous, but have, uh, have not, have not done it yet, but yeah, this could be a good checkpoint to people are making trades. People, people are, it could be a, a, a nice list of players. Of batters to uh, to sort of target in these buy low trades. I drafted
0: Mookie Betts in a in a TGFBI, and I think he's hitting two forty six or something like that. I mean, I'm obviously I'm hanging on, but uh, there, there's a place to start if you're looking for a place
2: to start. Well, I had, we, we talked about the the NFBC Second Chance Draft. I had him as I think the seventh or eighth. You know, if I'm taking you know, I would draft him seventh or eighth. Um, actually, I should I would. I think he'll I think he'll be the seventh or eighth best player because a lot of these guys I had Tim Anderson on the list. I'm not taking Tim Anderson in the first round. I just think he's gonna produce first round numbers and I'll draft him later. I'm still I mean, you probably caught some games of Mookie just because A, he's fun to watch and B, he's on your team. He's he doesn't he's not gonna admit it, but he's been dinged up and he's not a big guy. Um and so I you know, the I I, I think he I still think he will be fine again too good for too long and at this point he's got i mean next to mike trout's track uh, track record of excellence it's there i mean M- mookie's been around long enough now where i mean you if you compare him heads up with trout you can't give the nod to trout over for track it's longer but mookie's is now long enough uh betts is now long enough that it, it, it to me accounts the same as far as track record goes
0: Todd, uh, this has been great. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with you, and I'm holding you to half an hour.
2: Yeah, okay, sorry about that. No, uh, homebasemastersball.com. Uh, find me on Twitter, at Todd Zola, T-O-D-D-Z-O-L-A. Um, uh, Sirius XM over the weekend, and I'll be doing a lot of substitute work this month, so if you follow my Twitter account, I'll, I'll be on, on Sirius a lot in the uh, in the month of June for, for Jeff, for Chris, for for, for everybody. And let's see, ESPN Daily Notes. And, uh, and, you know, once every three or four weeks with you. And a whole bunch of other podcasts, we should say. I
0: I hear you on quite a few. Always interesting, always fun, and always entertaining. Uh, Todd Zola, thanks very much for helping us out. And as you said, every three or four weeks, we'll come back and uh, touch base, see what's going on, and have a little fun talking baseball.
2: And I'll read up on left on base percentage. I know what it is, folks. I'm sorry.
0: Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and appears regularly at ESPN, RotoWire, wire Series XM, and a lot of podcasts. Quick break here, then we're back with our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer coming up on Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Let me say something about greenies. First of all, greenies were not performance enhancers. At the best, they allowed a guy with a hangover or somebody who didn't get any sleep that night to be more alert. And he was able to play up to his normal ability. So they were performance enablers. They were not performance enhancers. They did not. They did not make him a better player than he ordinarily would. That's the difference between amphetamines and these uh, uh, human growth hormones and, and steroids. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not saying that's okay. I, I think there should be a ban on amphetamines too because they're not healthy. But they have to be put into a different category. Uh, you know than than the. Uh, Human growth hormones, they're they're probably something a little bit better than a cup of coffee in terms of the stimulation that you get. So I think you you need to, baseball needs to make a distinction there.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer coming up and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here, with a look at that other Seattle outfield prospect, Julio Rodriguez,
1: is baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The 20 year old Julio Rodriguez vaulted into the top 10 of the HQ 100 with a breakout performance in his 2019 stateside debut, where he slashed 326 with a 390 on base percentage and a 540 slugging percentage with 26 doubles and 12 home runs, and 328 at-bats as an 18-year-old between high and low A, and he finished the year as the youngest player in the Arizona Fall League. As with many prospects, 2020 was awash due to the COVID pandemic, and a fractured wrist caused him to miss most of the Mariners' alternate training site. With the promotion of Jared Kellenick to the big leagues, Rodriguez becomes the organization's top prospect still in the minors, and it isn't hard to see why the Mariners gave him a $1.75 million bonus in 2017. Rodriguez has above average to plus tools across the board and already owns plus power with an advanced approach at the plate. Rodriguez hunts pitches he can do damage to, though he does have some swing and miss to his game. Defensively, Rodriguez has seen action in center field, but he really profiles better in right field where his range and plus arm give him a chance to be an above average defender. The cost-conscious Mariner started Rodriguez back at a high A where he's off to a fast start hitting 3.18 with a 405 on base percentage and a 576 slugging percentage with 5 doubles, 5 home runs and 4 stolen bases and 85 at-bats. He should move up to double A by mid-season with a chance of joining Kendrick in the big leagues by late 2022. The Mariners haven't won more than 90 games or reached the postseason since their record-setting 2001 season, but with Kelenic and Rodriguez, the club has two top-ten prospects who should give long-suffering Mariners fans something to get excited about. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball
0: HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, don't miss our daily call-ups report. Looking at some big names, Miami first-base prospect and Diaz, Yankees outfield prospect Estevan Florial, Toronto right-handed starting pitching prospect Alec Manoa, and did he look good this week against New York, and Arizona right-hander John Duplantier. Now it's time for the frequent flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at international free agent starting pitcher and outfielder Oscar Colas is baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
5: He's known as the Cuban Otani, a left-handed flamethrower with a blazing 95-mile-per-hour fastball who can also hit and play all three outfield positions. In other words, 22-year-old Cuban prospect Oscar Colas is very, very talented. In fact, he's multi-talented. Yet the multi-talented, highly-touted Cuban prospect currently remains unsigned, and the next international signing period doesn't begin until January 15, 2022. That's a long time to wait. That's why 22-year-old flamethrowing left-hander Oscar Colas like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in competitive dynasty leagues. So don't count on Oscar Coloss in redraft leagues in 2021 and maybe he'll make a nice sleeper pick in 2022, but those in dynasty leagues may want to take immediate action. Craig MLB reporter Jesse Sanchez on May 28, 2021 the Chicago White Sox are the front-runner to land Oscar Colas with the expected $2.7 million deal. Worth noting, Oscar Colas batted 302 with 11 home runs in Japan's minor league system in 2019. Not bad. But digging deeper, something we'd love to do at BaseballHQ.com, let's attempt to look at the significance of this from a different angle. As you already know, the Chicago White Sox have invested heavily in international players in recent years, including Jose Abreu, Yod Mancada, Yasmati Grandal, Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, and of course, the Yerminator, Yermin Mercedes. Plus, cover your ears, White Sox fans, Chicago drafted Fernando Tatis Jr. in 2016. Which brings us back to Oscar Colas, who is currently reportedly training in the Dominican Republic with Fernando Tatis Sr. Once again, Oscar Colas is a left-handed pitcher who can touch 95 on the radar gun and bat 300 with power while playing all three outfield positions and playing them well. Wow! In other words, he's already a hot commodity. However, as with any investment or commodity, past performance is no guarantee of future success. Even so, perhaps investing in international free agent Oscar Colas, the Cuban Otani, even if he doesn't side with the White Sox, could provide huge future dynasty returns on investment as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire Series XM, a bunch of podcasts. Todd is a longtime favorite guest of this podcast and a great friend of mine and a great guy in general. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next Friday and for now, so long.
4: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.